Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. From a calendar standpoint, it's Word Balloon's 10th anniversary today. May 10th, 2005 is when I started WordBalloon.com with my first four interviews. The archive only goes back to 2006 because I then switched to the uh, current WordBalloon.com uh, website and uh, the archive acknowledges that as the starting point. But the Word Balloon website in WordBalloon.com did start on May 10th, 2005, and I spent 15 months at the original address and uh, RSS feed uh, doing these conversations. So uh, thank you for listening, uh, those of you who have been here from the beginning or near enough to the beginning, and thank you for everyone else that uh, has joined on for the ride. We've got more great coverage today from C2E2. Uh, things have been busy, and I'm sorry it's been so long since my last episode. This is the first new episode of May, and it's nice that we're doing it on the uh, 10th anniversary day. But I will make it up for you with excellent content from people like Jimmy Palmiotti, talking about the success of Harley Quinn with Amanda Connor and looking towards the future with uh, his Starfire series coming up in D.C. post-convergence. We also talk with Jonathan Hickman, Nick Dragata, and Nick Batara, uh, John's collaborators on Manhattan projects in East of West. And, of course, Dragata also worked with Hickman on uh, his excellent Fantastic Four run. Good conversation with them. Uh, we go to Gabe Hardman and Karina Bechko at C2E2 and a great floor interview uh, talking about Invisible Republic and uh, some other things that they've been doing recently and other things coming up in the future for them. Uh, then we go to Andrew Shaw, who is a listener from Down Under, uh, from the other side of the, con- uh, the uh, globe uh, in Australia. And uh, he had an interesting journey to C2E2, and we talk about that, and that's a lot of fun. Then uh, I bring you uh, my panel with uh, Gene Ha. It's really Gene Ha's panel. I just happen to be moderating it. But it was a great conversation, a great look back at Gene's career, and also what he's doing with the Kickstarter campaign uh, moving forward on a creator-owned book. And I hope you'll enjoy the details on that. And we wrap things up with Andy Schmidt. Andy, uh, as you know, is the head of uh, ComicsExperience.com, the great online comic book school. We talk about the school. Uh, They have two current books that are being printed by IDW, a new series from uh, graduates, and we talk about those books. Andy also had a Guardians of the Galaxy team-up issue come out from Marvel last Wednesday. He and Andy Lanning writing a cross between uh, Rocket Raccoon and the Pet Avengers, and uh, lots more. So a good market talk as well with uh, Andy Schmidt to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. As I said, 10th anniversary, more than ever, thank you for your support. Um, If you'd like to help uh, subscribe to Word Balloon, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. I'm only asking for a dollar a month if you can spare it. And I appreciate the support. And as always, the best way you can support Word Balloon is let a friend know that uh, you think it's a fun show. It's a free show, and it will always be free. But if you want to help, patreon.com slash wordballoon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades and InStockTrades.com. Uh, some of the great books on sale this week. You've got the hardcover Captain America Return of the Winter Soldier Omnibus. It's 50% off, just $49.99. You can get the Dial H Deluxe Hardcover Edition of the New 52, 50% off. China Melville's excellent series, $17.49. The Secret Wars Prelude trade paperback is 50% off from Marvel, $17.49. And uh, Batman Earth 1 Hardcover Volume 2, Jeff Johns, Gary Frank. The story continues, 50% off, $12.49. There's an Archie Thousand Page Comics Blowout trade paperback, 50% off, $7.49. You can get uh, Southern Bastards Volume 2 from Jason Aaron and Jason Latour, 42% off, $5.79. Yusaki Ojimbo, 
uh, hardcover is 42% off. The book Senso, uh, $11.69, and a hell of a lot more. For all the details, go to InStockTrades.com. All right, let's get things started now and uh, speak with Jimmy Palmiotti and uh, find out what's uh, going on in his mind. Another great creator that I always like to tap in terms of uh, taking the pulse of what he sees the market at. And uh, it was a great conversation on Sunday at C2E2. So here's Jimmy Palmiotti, now on Word Balloon. Sliding. Yeah, it's okay to be action while we're sliding. It's okay. It's action. It's action news. So many people... Are you telling me when you're writing? I'm Okay, excellent. So many people want to speak to Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Conner. Their lines are never ending, so it's, we're catching them in mid-signing. Yeah, it's usually the IRS and the federal government, but this time it's <laughs> about comic books, so that's it's good. It's all right. That's it's good for a change. It's good to see you both. Amanda is incredibly that's busy, right. so I'm going to talk to her from afar and just, like, wish you well over the, over the din, my Hi. friend. It's all right. You keep drawing. It's all good. And Jimmy, nice uh, for both of you, nice going. Harley Quinn was ahead of the curve in terms of DC uh, coming up with some innovative things that that the public has really responded to, and it continues to thrive. And uh, now you're bringing it to uh, Starfire, correct? It, it is. It's true. It, it's um, when I tell people I'm from the future, they don't really believe me right away. So I have to come back in time, work on a Hollywood book because I knew it's going to be successful in the future, and then prove it once more. But it's it's a, it's an eternal loop I'm stuck in. Um, and the same thing's going to happen with Starfire. It's going to be extremely successful. And nobody knows it yet. I'm only only Amanda and I know. Nah, you and it's only because I told Amanda, because only one of us can, can go to the future. And oh, it's I always see. me. Because if she goes, she's going to stay there. Because she sees what happens to me in the future, and she realizes how what a horrible choice she made in men. But what can you do? You know, obviously, it really started with Power Girl, uh, and then yes. your guys run on Power Girl. We were pa- we with Harley. We Power Girled it. I know they call it Batgirling, but we like to call it Power Girling. I would agree. And, and um, it's it's just that we took the essence of what we thought the character was about. How you doing, buddy? And um, and just kind of gave everybody the core character, something that we also took Harley out of Gotham, which was important because. We felt that she was in Gotham and be another Batman book. It'd feel like another Batman book. And in order for a character to kind of step out on their own, they have to cut their ties some. So like you did when you left home. That's and, sure. And, you know, sure. went on went out with that band you were in and all that stuff. So it's like that. <laughs> um, that's what we did with Harley. Absolutely. And I told you guys last year when we talked, too, it, to me, it's like Lil Annie Fanny. I mean, this is like your well-elder Harvey Kurtzman book and stuff, and, and it has that kind of vibe to it. And you have the reference, because uh, not everybody knows who Lil Annie Fanny is, right? But absolutely. I mean, I had a pay- Playboy collection, and everyone thought I bought them for the girls, and it was just for the comic strip in the back. Because it was biting and the art- satire? And the and- articles. Sure, and they, you know, I had to go around the girls, the girls spreads all the time because it, they got in the way of my. Get in the way, I respect yeah. it. Yeah, enough of the girls, man. Give me, give me that new Ian Fleming. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Exactly. Give me that new Ian Fleming. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new term. Man. How you doing, buddy? Good. This is a nice interview signing thing. Yeah, no, no, this is good. It's just, it's it's informal. I like it. Jimmy uh, also a uh, very. Uh, Prodigious with his uh, Kickstarter campaigns. Thanks, I hope prodigious buddy. is the right word. Yeah, but I'm gonna. Sure. We're gonna go with exactly. Who am I talking scrumptious to? Scrumptious is the wrong word. But it work. But I kind of like it. They are scrumptious. There are no you. But you've you've built this again. Another kind of a different kind of rhythm yeah. with your Kickstarter campaigns. You really seem to have it down to a science. I, it, it is. It's just because it's grassroots, right? So, uh, being a consumer, I, I kind of look for certain things when I'm buying something. So I just applied it to when I'm actually selling something. So it's. 
customer satisfaction, making it personal, following up with people if there's problems, and then, you know, the main course, which is trying to deliver the best book I can, quality-wise, yeah, paper-wise. We all our books are printed here in Illinois. So oh no kidding! Yeah, yeah. We keep the Americans busy. Yeah, there we, you uh, go. Chinese got enough stuff to do. <laughs> that's Ninety nine cents. And then, they don't need to touch my comics. That's true. And many books are published in China, so right. that is interesting. So yeah. I keep them here, and they cost a little more. But the quality has. I have quality control, and you know when you get the books, they they're heavy. They feel like. Okay, this should cost money. Yeah, no, it's a real, no, a, it's a quality book. Visceral, I think it's like an experience where you, you say, okay, you know, like when you when you go to a comic store and you like pick up, well, I'll use Marvel Comics as an example because they're fun. Um, the cover quality, the cover is the same stock as the inside. And when they did that, people were okay with it, but I'm not because I, I always like a thicker paper stock. So I'm like, I'm, so I probably obsess a little bit too much about things like that, but I feel like. Overall, it's the experience of the Kickstarter. The person gets a package. I tend to, you know, try to sign their name, say, hey, thank you, and uh, a little note, uh, a business card, and a book, and the backing boards, and the prints, and, you know, so I, but I love it, because I have a, a, a group of a couple of thousand loyal people that will try any stupid idea I come up with, if I present it right. Um, and it's and it's kind of a neat thing because we're on our you know we just we're finishing I'm finishing up delivering the eighth one right now. There you go, Abaddon. And I have like eleven more packages left. These are the hard packages because I do these mystery boxes where I have to fill a box with stuff, and those take me like all week to do because I'm trying to make each one like weird and and fun. Um, but yeah, in the last three weeks, I've mailed out uh, over one thousand one hundred envelopes uh, and stamped each one and stamped it and put but I love it and it's a, I think it's a great interaction with the audience and um, you know on some of them one day they get sold elsewhere to be printed like Forager I was going to ask go on yeah, Forager Jet City Comics said we'd love to publish it get it to people that never saw it past the Kickstarter right so to keep loyal to my Kickstarter people I made them put a different cover on it so okay they, so they have the only Darwin Cook cover, right? You know, right, and uh, and then uh, and then it comes out, I think, in fall, and it's a different price, but it's not going to be the same kind of book. But it's still at least it gets a bigger audience, and in the end, that's what we want is we want people to read it. But I also want to make my Kickstarter people have the only editions that exist. But that's that. smart. No, yeah. but that's smart, making it unique for them and the experience and the fact that they are backing you and, and making these productions possible. Exactly. But on your end, too, and I and I appreciate the, the time and effort you put in the production side yeah. and also the delivery and customer service, but really at the heart, you are telling these stories that you really want to tell and have built enough of an audience that I hope, you know, pays for the book. It's something we've talked about before as far yeah. as the economics of it all. A absolutely. And, and um I, I'm, you know, other than Forager, I'm a kind of an adult. I, I like my, I like my uh, my stories a little more adult. I like them a little risque. I grew up with heavy metal um, and Playboys and all that. Sure, man. Black so, and white comics. They didn't have to worry about the comics right. code. Had nudity. Had right. extreme violence. And I'm not shy about throwing subject matter out there that other people uh, tend to run away from. But I think with all the publishing being done, I, I think it's not the time to be safe. I think it's time to experiment. And I like to genres and mess, mess, you know, mess with things. And every book we do is a different genre. We try, we uh, try to like focus on. Justin and I talk about different ideas, and I give you a little hint. You know, I got, I've got a book coming up with Frank Thierry that has history. Okay. Start again with Frank Thierry. Frank Thierry will not leave my mother alone. No, I'm kidding. Um, 
No, I have another book coming up with uh, next Kickstarter with Frank Thierry. And it, the genre is history. And we take, uh, you know, like Jonah Hex, we take a little bit of what really happened and then we mix our story in. I love stories in history. There's a billion stories to be told. And it's shocking how many people don't even know anything about history. So I think it's always a, it's a great frame to put a story that's usually, uh, for me anyway, it's all about passion, crime and passion and all that kind of stuff. So. I got to ask, because of the current environment right now, and, and specifically, like you said, you do adult books. Yes. You are not afraid of sexuality in books. No. You're not afraid of their, your heroes copulating or, or no. however you want to put it. Yeah. There is this divide between, because also at the same time, you're very supportive of women creators, you're very supportive of, I think, inclusion and diversity in your books and stuff like yes. that, so you've got these two camps that are kind of, well, and certainly it seems from one side, kind of attacking a new audience, and yet your stuff could represent them, and I wonder if, like, you have thoughts of all this nonsense that's going on, but also, has it impacted your work from either side? Well, if you read Harley Quinn, we don't shy away from anything. We right. Just, we dig right in and go, but it's done with a sense of humor. And you've you've even gotten, a, but you've even kind of gotten in not trouble, but obviously, yeah. you know. We got a so little, yeah, talk to. We him. got a little free press with some suicide stuff that was just. It was stuff taken out of context. And when the book came out, all that calmed down because I realized, oh, wait a minute, it's, it's cartoony and it's not really about suicide. Um, by the way, it's in a group of uh, characters called the Suicide Squad, in case anybody else wants to pick on that. Um, <laughs> That's true. But with, with the sexuality, it's, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I've been around women all my whole life, you know, and I, I, they're just as horny and crazy as the guys are. Um, and I will say that if you handle the material in a mature fashion and, uh, and stay true to the actual characters you present, then I, I think it's less offensive. Now, with Harley, her sexual orientation is right there in the book. Uh, with the stuff I do, there's no beating around the bush. People, if somebody's bisexual, like Painkiller Jane is a bisexual character. Yes. Um, if I don't really know what I'm talking about, I have a bisexual friend that I run the book by and go, okay. did I, did I, am I making sense here? Or is this thing like, is it just a guy saying, it makes sense, sure. you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't, you can't really fear that. My, my job is to write, stay true to the story. The reader's job is to pick it apart and get upset about it or make noise about it. And honestly, uh... You know, the people who know me, and it's a lot of people, know that I'm the most respectful person to women on earth. And if I'm writing something, it's usually the guys that are getting abused a little bit in my books. Right. It's usually the guys that are getting played by the women, and it's not the other way around. Um, but it's not a conscious thing. I just think that I'm very comfortable with my sexuality, and I think that my characters have that in common, is that they're, they're comfortable about who they are, and they act the way that stays true to the characters. And... Um, so if people want to take it, pull it out of context and take it apart, then it's on them. It's not on me because I like to keep everything in context. That, that said, like I said, what we write, I, I'm conscious of what's going on on the Internet, but I also have to ignore it in order for me to stay true to the story I'm trying sure. to tell. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. I also have Amanda in the same house with me, and if I do anything really stupid, she'll smack me in the head and say, change it. <laughs> So at the end of the day, there's that. But I, I think, um, I think you know, I think it's a it's a great time because I also think women can embrace their sexuality and a lot of more women writers, and they can put it out there and show the guys a thing or two on how it's done. So no I think question. It's a great time. Excellent, man. No, and I and truly, that's the thing. 
I, I think you're one of the best observers and participants in comics, and that's why I always want to ask you questions well, like this, man. So, no, no question. That. Hey, dude, and you know it. I mean, yeah. from the start. And you've, hey, man, since Marvel, well, we were became aware of you in the event comics Marvel Nights right, days yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And that's the thing, Jimmy. No, you've been pushing since the 90s in terms of really stretching the, the, the medium in, in, this, in your storytelling, and Amanda as well. And, yeah, uh, look you how know. great it is. We're at a convention where it's just as many men, women as men. Ten years ago, that didn't exist. There's a reason for that. It's, it's, things are changing, and it's good kinds of changes. I blame Obama, <laughs> in, but in a good way. In a good way. Here, here, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, in a good way. At all. I think the world changed since he came into office. I think just gay marriage is legal in states. No, you're right. No, it's like opening a window, man. For people. I just think that people are starting to be more aware of each other, relate to each other, and then see what other people need needs are and not be so afraid of it all the time. And I think that's, you break down those walls and you realize that we all just want to be loved at the end of the day. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Continued success. I'll be bugging you on the phone or awesome. Skype for a, for a longer talk always. as always. But it's a pleasure seeing you as always. Always Thanks, great. Thank you. All right, we keep it running. Uh, this was uh, late on uh, Saturday afternoon. I know my mind was tapioca at this point, and I kind of let uh, Jonathan Hickman, Nick Dragata, and Nick Patara uh, all talk to me about uh, their great work at uh, Image with uh, the books uh, The Manhattan Projects and, of course, uh, East of West, two very interesting different books. From the Manhattan Project's uh, skewed look at uh, the Atomic Age in a very funny way that uh, delves in history, but also has some crazy spins to it, to East of West, the end of the world apocalypse story that uh, continues. So uh, from the mind of John Hickman, Nick Patara and Nick Dragata, let's get the conversation rolling now on Word Balloon. This is my version of the Marx Brothers stateroom scene at Night at the Opera, and movie buff fans know what I'm talking about, because we're literally in, like, two phone booths right now, but this is good. I've got great creators of East of West, Manhattan Projects, a lot of other things. It is Nick Dragata, John Hickman, and Nick Patata. Good to see you, gentlemen. Thanks for having us on. Excellent. Good to see you there. There you are. What's up, John? Beautiful. All right, I'll start with East West. We'll go this way. First of all, Nick, i got to tell you, one thing way back when you did Fantastic Four and the death of Johnny Storm, and I've told Hickman this a million times, and I've told you, I think, at cons, it was just heartbreaking, some of these emotional nice. scenes. And no death is forever. We all know that. Yeah. But it's to play those big, strong emotional scenes, and your art was carrying a lot of that. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, it's all about storytelling. So Jonathan wrote a great script and just wanted to put it down you know, so people can understand it. <laughs> See, Johnny's going to be a snipe guy, though, but it's all right. Oh, no, no. It's I, good. I, I'll tell you, the issue that I love more than that is the last issue of FF. Where yeah, they're doing like the, in the imagination run. stuff. Yeah, the FF run was fun. You don't have to walk. So. You can run, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You killed on that one, too. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's the thing, man. I mean, everyone's like, ah, Fantastic Four. And it's like, God, there have been some classic runs, and you guys were a big part of uh, that. I mean, so I'm that's... a huge fan of FF, going all the way back to Kirby and Lee. So just to get to work on that book. I had to up my game. You Excellent. Know, just be a part of that history. So. All right, and now I'm going to do like ping pong, and then we'll, I will talk about Manhattan Projects. If you don't know about Manhattan Projects, it's everything about the space race and the atomic age in a very crazy, skewed way, and Nick and John take care of that. John, I've told you before, it, it's just crazier and crazier, and as you reach the 60s now, uh, the story continues to just get even more insane that we got JFK and the NASA stuff and everything sure, else. Sure. Well, the cool thing that we're uh, we're doing now is we're at a place where we'll, we kind of finally wanted to get the book where we can tell a bunch of different genre stories where the guys are all separated on different adventures and... Um, 
you know, really let let Nick and myself cut loose. If we want to do a if we want to do a spy crime noir thing with with the generals with Oppenheimer and Westmoreland. I was going to say Westmoreland, absolutely. We can, we can right. do that. You know, if we yes. want to do a hard sci-fi thing with uh, Werner von Braun, we can do that as well. It's very cool right now. All right, we, Nick, have you been a fan of all this kind of history as well? I mean, did you jump at this when John proposed it for you? Um, I would say not so much. I think a lot, <laughs> a lot of the history stuff comes from John, but but in doing research, once I had to draw it, uh, became a fan, and then really realized that John wasn't like bullshitting a whole lot with uh, without a lot of the details. I'd go back and like research Oppenheimer's biography, and I would see little details from like the first script that I didn't really pay attention to, and just did my own thing. And then I kind of felt like undermined him a little bit. So then I, I caught up a little bit on the history, and then just kind of had fun with it from there. He's been he's been pushing me hard to put Jack Parsons stuff in it. Jack Parsons. I'm, 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 now I'm blanking Jack Parsons. I know, shame Jack, on me. Jack Parsons, uh, he created the rocket fuel for Warner Von Braun's rockets. Oh, very cool. And he's a really he's crazy... He's an occult guy. I didn't... Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Super occult. I thought it was too on the nose. He was... He, 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 <laughs> That's fantastic. That's the thing, man, and and I and that's what I love about it. I think I know my fifties and sixties U.S. history and stuff, and there is a lot of great, crazy, subversive stuff. And of course, you guys take the real history and then make this absolute left with splatter and craziness, and it's like, I don't know, Harvey Kurtzman's like kind of territory. I don't even well, it's Hickman and Patara territory, obviously. So there you go. Well, back to uh, Hickman and Dragata with East of West, a different sort of uh, crazy book. It's the end of the apocalypse. It's a post-future world, and we're looking at the end of the world. And as civilization falls, all the factions that that gather. Um, Are you on volume four or five now? Four comes out next month. Okay. Maybe. Close. (laughs) Next month-ish. All right. Like put nineteen, hey. the last issue of the of the volume. The work is in the can. Yeah, yeah, it's we're, just the we're production. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's just when it'll ship. All so. right, still and a blast. Can, still enjoying it. I love this? it. Yeah, love we got a killer hardcover. Like the first year of the apocalypse is coming out in time for San Diego, so it'll be the first three volumes together. It's got a bunch of bonus stuff in it. It'll Excellent. Be, it'll be a really nice package. And yeah, volume four starts the second year basically. I mean, it's right. kind of started, I guess, year with seventeen yeah, yeah, and, or yeah. sixteen yeah. through eighteen. But yeah. yeah, excellent, very cool. Tell me about this image. Revolution. We're sitting in the image phone booth right now. But really, guys, uh, from, you know, what's been going on, you know, John's audience seems to have grown because of his Marvel work. But just your experience of, of what's going on with creator-owned books and the gathering and the following that you guys are getting. I mean, since I joined Image, it's changed my life. Uh, so, you know, it's not it's not work for hire. You own 100% of your material. I share it with Jonathan. And... Uh, Everything we make goes right into our pocket. And then creatively, you can do whatever you want. So I think, like, my work is growing because of that. And uh, it's just been incredible. When readers support Image, they're creating a better industry, without a doubt. Absolutely, Nick. Yeah, absolutely life-changing for me as well. Um, before uh, John found me and we started working on Manhattan Projects. Found. I, he, he, did, he did kind of discover me on, on online message boards and stuff. But before that, it was me struggling, you know, hoping to get a gig for Marvel. Uh, and then not not writing back, and then now uh, it's been you know creatively rewarding, uh, financially rewarding, uh, also pretty life changing, uh, all because uh, you know image and creator own creator own comics. So it's changed my life. Excellent, and I also think that um, John, you you know, I know you're on your final lap of regular monthly Marvel work, sure. Secret Wars, and everything, yeah. and. Uh, 
God, this Avengers story that you've been telling since day one has just been epic. So you really are going out on a bang. Was this, again, a story that really just started off as an Avengers-only story and everyone just kind of took a look and said, oh, this has got to be bigger. we got to make it bigger. Well, I, I pitched it. Um, Tom Brevoort and I, my editor at on Avengers, we, we've been talking about it for five years, four and a half, five years. So it's, it was during Secret Warriors. It wasn't it wasn't Avengers wow. stuff. Okay. But it was when they... Your Nick Fury series. Yeah, yeah. And when, so when when I got the Avengers book, it was like, look, this is the place for this to fit and all that. Um, and I pitched it all. I mean, they knew it was coming. And what happened is two things. We got so pregnant, we had to have the baby. That was one thing. Uh, the other thing was, it was a real opportunity to do something huge. Um, and, you know, I don't... I don't um, I don't know too many times in comic book history when um, somebody has pitched a book and that book was basically stop printing and publishing all your books and then let's do something different. So it's... Um, Days of Future Past kind of... Yeah, so much bigger. Yeah, exactly, because that was just the X-Line, the X-Men yeah, the line. Age of Apocalypse stuff was four books. This is, this is 60 books. I mean, it's crazy. And so... Um, you know, it's nice that they trust me and that they're invested in it and all that kind of stuff, but um, it's it's all telling stories, having a good time, Excellent. not sleeping. That's a big <laughs> part of it, you know? But, um, well, well, and without spoiling, because a lot of... It seems a lot of the action is going to also happen in some of these side books that other people are doing, yeah. the battles of... Uh, various uh, alternate histories of Marvel's uh, universe getting together and fighting and stuff. Will there uh, is there a separate track in Secret, Secret Wars? How would you define the main series from all these tie-in series? Yeah, that we're all you need see? to all you need to read to get the whole thing is Secret Wars. But there's, um, I think they're labeling them Battle World books. Right, is all the stuff where it it's you know you can read those and it's like a much broader look at it. Uh, and then there's everything else is like alt history and all, all of that kind of stuff. So um, it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I don't expect anyone to buy it all. Please buy it all. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's um, you know it's going to swallow the industry for a couple months, uh, and then I'm running away like hell. <laughs> You're gonna I'm going, hide in a cave. I'm going on vacation and make an image. Comments. All right, good. We got a backlog of like scripts for you guys, so that yeah, at least we'll still get the yeah, image yeah, books while exactly. while while Johnny like runs away from Marvel. Good, exactly. excellent. No, hey, seriously, you guys are changing comics, and that's that is not hyperbole. You truly are, and it's it's exciting that there is such a strong audience that is following your work and appreciating it the way it does. I see the lines at your tables. I see them here at the image booth. Congratulations, it's well deserved. And keep it up because there's plenty of room to expand. And, and I'm glad you guys are doing it. So well done. Thanks, Thank John. you, John. Thank, Thank you, John. Thank you. Next up, a good conversation with Gabe Hardman and Karina Bechko. It's rare that I get Karina on the show. Gabe, of course, and a regular here at Word Balloon, uh, whether it's scene missing or just talking about books in general. Well, they're working together again. They did that excellent work on Star Wars Legacy. They now move on to Invisible Republic, a great creator-owned book they're doing uh, through Image. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to them about that and a whole lot more. Gabe Hardman, Karina Bechko, now on Word Balloon. Happy to have Karina Bechko and Gabe Hardman back for another chat. And uh, they are an amazing team, writer, artist, and they've created some excellent comics and continue to with their new series. You might see it, Invisible Republic. And it's a pleasure to see you guys. A pleasure to see you, John. Pleasure to see you. Give me the 10 cents on Invisible Republic. It's uh, it, it's a sort of uh, political sci-fi thriller, uh, you know, a gritty, you know, um, it's it's like 
It's like a gritty '70s movie, but uh, you know, uh, but you know, but the the uh, the future sci-fi version. Yeah, it's like it's a '70s Blade Runner kind of yeah. uh, thing, if yeah. you will. Yeah. If I can mention some other uh, film, you know, property sure. and stuff. So there you go. No, this is I know this is your milieu. Yeah. As far as noir, both of you yeah, actually. Yeah. And these are these are big movie hounds, and word balloon listeners certainly yeah. know about your love of movies and all. So uh, yeah, was it was it an easy sell to you, Karina? Oh yeah, I mean this is what we've been wanting to do for years now. We're finally getting the chance to do it. So. Excellent. Just finished up a long run on uh, Star Wars, back mm-hmm. for Dark Horse and everything mm-hmm. on Legacy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, good feedback from that. Absolutely. Yeah, we still get a lot of fans coming, uh, you know, coming to get those signed and excitement about it. I mean, there the um, uh, there there's some superficial similarities between what we did in that book and the yeah. Force Awakens well, movie, and so you know, people, uh, you know, so people end up, you know, uh, it, you know the. The character seems to be living in a junkyard, and and a female, strong female character, stuff like that, which is what our book was about. So there's, uh, you know, pe- people are interested in that connection. Excellent for Invisible Republic. We're looking at uh, a five uh, issue first arc. Five issue first arc. Um, the, it's a it's a long form series, so uh, you know it it has an ending. It wouldn't be a story if it didn't have an ending. Yeah, but uh, but it collected in trades in between. So uh, first trade is out in August. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we think it's going to be, uh, you know, ideally like a 30-issue sort of area. That makes sense, and I'm hearing that more and more from image people, that yeah. that seems to be the right number, yeah. giving you enough trades, but also that, God, there's so much great product to choose from now. It really is tough to he- keep someone's attention, and I do think that, yeah, maybe five arcs is enough. Yeah, you know? but I don't, I don't... Or six. I, I don't quite think it's about that. I mean, I think that it's about, you know... Um, I hope that it's about people telling, you know, telling full stories and not, you know, and getting away from this sense that comics are about, you know, a sort of perpetual motion machine uh, that, that you get from, you know, from Marvel and DC. And, and you know, those Marvel and DC books are there. These, this is just offering, you know, people a, a different kind of storytelling. And are you finding a different kind of audience because of it? Are you finding less people coming from... I mean, you've, you've had your share of more Marvel, but also DC projects and stuff. Both of you have, actually. And I know you worked together on uh, The Hulk recently. Yeah. We'll yeah. talk about that in a second. But yeah, as far as things for Invisible Republic or Kinski that we'll talk about in a second, you know, would you say that that's coming more from uh, a different place? I think it's both. Yeah, you yeah know? it seems to be. Um, it's it's a lot of the people from that stuff, but then yeah, new people as well, which is actually really gratifying. It seems to have a wider reach. If you will. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think it is both. I mean, there, there, you know, and I've certainly heard from a lot of people who were. Um, you know, who are, are Marvel and DC fans who are just excited to read different kinds of stuff as well. That's cool. I made, Am I nuts for saying, like, even elements, even though it's not surveillance, but, like, the conversation might be another good kind of touchdown for... Well, I mean, I think uh, certainly conspiracy yeah, conspiratorial, are, exactly. you know, uh, are a big influence. You know, your parallax views, your, your conversation. Attaboy, there like you that, go. You know. Uh, but uh, maybe you know, even some dog day afternoon. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, I we're making a, a science fiction book where basically people, you know, uh, the, you, there's barely any science fiction, and the, the main character yeah. dresses like a '60s radical. But you know, like, <laughs> all right, I see spaceships there, and laser guns. There, there is, so. there is, you know, there, there is definitely a sci-fi book, and it's definitely, you know, uh, very grounded in that sort of stuff. And it's and it's a hard sci-fi book in a lot of ways too. But it. Um, but it's really a character story, and we're focused on telling the story of these characters more than anything. Excellent. And I, I, I want to mention Kinski because Kinski was your digital book. It is now in, in uh, print as well. And uh, 
it, it again scratch your your noir itch, and it would yeah. it, it really has that low budget noir feel to it in a, in the in the best possible way, where a guy finds what he thinks is an abandoned dog, and then of course uh, the story gets more complicated. Yeah, I'm the it's it's about uh, you know it, I mean it's it's a sort of quirky Coen Brothersy noir sort of thing, and um, you know the uh, uh, and and a guy who ends up sort of stealing a dog and the way and the and the uh, all of the terrible repercussions that follow and he um, and I think that it's uh, as far as scratching an itch it's also just that I you know I did everything in the book it's a you know I, I wrote it drew it and lettered it and so um, in a lot of ways it was sort of a big experiment in storytelling uh, you know and uh, and I'm you know and, and I'm able to bring some of that uh, you know very direct character-oriented visual storytelling into Invisible Republic as well and, you know, and, you know, the, the way that we're making the book sort of evolves and, um, and you know, doing this sort of stuff, this indie stuff, doing it in an image, like, and this is the way to experiment with, uh, you know, with how to tell a story, you know? Excellent. To wrap up, Karina, I gotta ask because I've been meaning to ever since Gabe told me that you guys were doing The Hulk and I'm always, I, I am thrilled because even when Kelly Sue was writing The Hulk in her Avengers book, I always think that's interesting. So yeah, tell me, tell me what it's like to write the Hulk. Um, well, when we were working on it, we both really liked the Bill Mantlo era. Some of the really crazy where there were different worlds and the Hulkball Collective and all of that. So we decided that that was definitely where we would set the story. So it's a sort of it's out of continuity in that it doesn't hook into the current Hulk run. But sure. Um, I think that we just really, we had a story that the Hulk could really fit into, and we owe a lot to those early... Yeah, and it was a, yeah, a, sto- a, a Doctor Strange story that Hulk would fit into. No, <laughs> absolutely, but, that's like, awesome, uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it was an opportunity to tell a Doctor Strange story as well, and I mean, I think he was a character we, we both really connect with and like, and, uh, and Hulk in it, for the most part, is just a savage brute. Right. So, you know, he's a force of nature Hulk, so, uh, you know, so, like, it, it's, there's less of that sort of stuff. I think that, I, I know both of us would still really like to do a, a you know, a banner, a proper, you know, banner, Hulk straight on story. Okay. Story, you know, uh, you know, I've always liked Banner. I've always connected with that character and and thought that there was something else to tell with something him. Something to be said for doing uh, Hulk as a monster. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that we're able. We were able to relate to Hulk in, and I've always felt like you know, if if he's a monster, I kind of understand what he is more than uh, than a big weird naked superhero. <laughs> the story reminded me too of the black and white Hulk magazine. Yeah, oh, which yeah. was I you know that's that's probably a good uh, yeah, you know uh, a good yeah exactly. <laughs> and we did we, and we also did a uh, a Wonder Woman story for Sensation Comics recently. And, Talk about you know, it. That was another. Um, it was a three-parter, uh, you know, they came out digitally three in three parts, but the, um, but it was collected into, like, one single one-shot, which is great. I mean, that's certainly the sort of thing that I love. It was Wonder Woman going to Apocalypse, and there's a certain uh, uh, kind of espionage element to it, and, you know... It's a uh, diplomatic story uh, it, it, into sort of a conspiracy story. Obviously, you're seeing like some you, themes yeah, that... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I see the thread. I see yeah, the common yeah, thread, yeah. very much so. But I really liked, you know, doing the apocalypse stuff, and, uh, you know, we, we enjoyed writing it, and I liked uh, drawing it. And, you know, and, I mean, it's crazy stuff, but I'll always like to make things credible. So, I, I you know, and, and I, I don't want to do things exactly how Kirby did it, because he already did it that way and did it better. So, you know. Yeah, you're not going to improve on that, so we, we put our own spin a little. Yeah, excellent, man. 
No, continued success, and I love uh, Invisible Republic. The two issue, we're two issues in, and I and I know it's a story that you've been wanting to tell for a long time. I think it's the right time, and uh, I, it seems I'm, to be because the response has been really, really good. That's exactly like, what I was. Yeah, yes, yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I'm you know, it's it's not like it's a surprise exactly, but it's really gratifying to have this book that basically was in our heads for you know for years, and you know, and really didn't have you know didn't have some huge vetting. Process through anybody or anything right. like that. We just made exactly the book we wanted to make, and people have really responded to it. So you know, that's that's you know, it's really gratifying. Well, part of that, I believe, honestly, is you've always made yourself available to the podcast audience, and and no, but it really helped. I do bro- think that that's draw part your of persona. We know who you are, and yeah, yeah exactly. I, help, uh, I think yeah, we all helped. This, help this you, cartoonish you know. persona I've created has uh, you know has paid off. <laughs> <laughs> He's not as angry as he seems, I swear to God. No, it's always awesome to talk to you guys, and we'll talk more movies uh, down the road and more books. But congratulations on the start of Invincible Republic, and I, I hope the audience stays with you for 30 issues and, and beyond. You yeah, Thank you, Thank so you John. Yeah. Thank you. I met so many uh, new uh, listeners uh, and old listeners that uh, for the first time, and it's always a pleasure, and I always appreciate that at all the conventions. And among them, I got to meet uh, a couple Australians that uh, were good guys and have always been good guys. Dan Pua, otherwise known as Leaf Insect Man, uh, who is a regular podcast listener, not only of Word Balloon, but uh, a lot of my uh, friends' programs as well, and Andrew Shaw. And uh, I uh, didn't have a chance to uh, get Dan on the, this podcast, but Andrew was telling me a very unique story of how he traveled from Australia to Chicago. And it's worth it. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's check in with Andrew Shaw from the floor of C2E2, now on Word Balloon. Oh, man. This is great, and this always happens. I get to uh, not only talk to my favorite creators, but really it's great to meet you guys when, uh, when I'm out here at the conventions. So people can literally come up and go, hey, John, I listen to the show. And that's fantastic. And uh, I'm talking with Andrew right now from Australia. Andrew, what's your last name? Shaw. Andrew Shaw. It's a pleasure, man. And were you a Bendis board guy as well, Andrew? No. I know Leaf in- Insect Man was, so yeah. you're, you're a compatriot. He was a bit after me. Okay. So, yeah. No worries, man. But uh, truly, uh, thank you for uh, a-, a saying hello. And I'm really glad that you're able to make it to Chicago. And it really, I should always ask how you guys end up coming here and stuff, because certainly I haven't been able to come to Australia <laughs> yet. So yeah, how, how did you end up coming here? Well, I was in Melbourne, and there's a game show that runs on TV there, and I thought I'd. What's the name of the game show? Uh, it's called Deal or No Deal. No, it's not Deal or No Deal. It's a Million Dollar Minute. Million Dollar Minute. Is it a trivia kind yeah, of? Okay. Yeah. So, what was your subject? Uh, well, you go on it's just general knowledge. General knowledge. And you, okay. So you uh, go against two other people. Um, and I went on it for a bit of a laugh. I thought I'd try and get some money to win a new computer. And on the first show, I ended up, I got the money that I wanted. I wanted for 1500 bucks. It's perfect. So I think I just relaxed after that. And I ended up being on it for four nights and winning $70,000. <laughs> So that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's fantastic. Now, you know, American game shows, uh, like the taxes, they're like, hey, how you doing? See, you know, here's, here goes most of your money. Yeah. And sometimes, like literally, especially when they would get merchandise, that that's taxable income as yeah. well. So I imagine, it's, it's, how are the taxes for Australian game shows and stuff? There's no tax on it. That's so outstanding. Everything's mine. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. Wow, man. Yeah. All right. So obviously, note to self, emigrate. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> I'm coming in. Yeah, that's it. That's awesome, man. Yes, All right, you got a couch in? Yeah, exactly. That'd be fantastic, man. Yeah, so it, it, and that's why I'm here. And I said to my wife, you know, I walked out of the, the day I filmed it, and I said, I rang her, and I said, oh, have we got valid passports? And so I'm, I'm here for this, and I've left her and the kids at home. And Wow. 
but then later in the year she's going over to Vanuatu with one of her friends. So. Outstanding. Where, where is that? Vanuatu. Is that uh, Vanuatu, yeah, where is yeah. that? That's uh, in the Pacific Island nation. Okay. It actually was just hit by a massive uh, typhoon or something. Oh, man. It almost disappeared. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, but she said she was looking at something and they said that go there because they need the tourism now. So she's going to go there. And oh, lay that's on, really cool. She's going to go there and lay on a beach for a week. So That's fantastic. You know, uh, Padre Island is a, a coastal resort area in Texas, and we had gone there right after a disaster. That This was years and years ago. But it really, like, they're like, yeah, they needed the tourism, yeah. and we got great deals, and it was a really nice time, and yeah, we had fun, and it was amazing. Yeah, so yeah, you got to do no, absolutely, and that's really good. You're helping the economy yeah, over there exactly too. Right. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. You know, being a boxing guy um, for the longest time, Australia and uh, New Zealand. Jeff Harding, the Australian uh, light heavyweight, yep. uh, I, w- I was a fan of. And a lot of times, the only times I would see a lot of his Aussie fights were on uh, Spanish uh, television. Oh, really? So, yeah, luckily my high school and college Spanish helped me understand enough. <laughs> and Jeff Fennick got to meet... Uh, oh, Jeff Fennick? Jeff Fennick was awesome. Jeff Fennick, an amazing featherweight champion, a, a mini Tyson of his yep. day. And, uh, God, his wars against Azuma Nelson were just amazing. And, no, it was a real... And, it, and yeah, man, total tough guy. And I know he became a rugby, rugby player after his uh, boxing yeah, career. Yeah, and then he got in a bit of trouble with the law as well for a little while. There. That doesn't surprise because yeah. there's definitely hooligan in the guy and when I started interviewing him in Vegas at first he's like yeah who the hell are you yeah. and totally give me drills and then when I actually knew his fights he softened up yep. and he's like oh shit you really are a fan I'm like yeah man yeah, I'm yeah. like you're you're amazing I go it's, it's an honor oh, to meet you could have been cooler there's um Danny Green who was an Australian boxer I remember him yes fantastic. Danny Green fought uh, Ray Leonard yes yeah yeah and absolutely I think he was very underrated he fought um Anthony Mundine who's another Australian boxer and just couldn't beat him just kept trying oh and, wow but Everyone was going for Danny Green because Anthony Mundine. Not, not many people are big fans of his. <laughs> are there is is uh, boxing uh, still still big in Australia? Wasn't the Russian uh, based in? Was it Australia? Uh, um, oh, what's his name? Amazing amateur that became yeah, like a featherweight. Yeah. Uh, Costa Zoo. Costa Costa Zoo. Fantastic. Yes. Quick, and then Wayne was in Australia. Quick. Yeah, he was. Johnny. Uh, what was the trainer? The great trainer. That's a good question. John. It's all right. Yeah, all right, no, but you did, Andrew, you did great. Yeah. I wish I had another 70000 to give you. You did so good on your <laughs> boxing. You. I, I Let's move on it. to history. All right. <laughs> for twenty grand. That's great, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So th- thank you for very much for... Oh, Andrew, no, seriously. I, I really appreciate seeing you, and I'm sorry Leaf isn't here to uh, to share the I moment. still asleep. I respect that. <laughs> That's okay. But you've been having a blast. I know you've been hanging with uh, the 11 o'clock comic guys as well. Yeah, yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's mind-blowing just walking... This, the convention is probably 10 times as big as anything I've been to in Australia. Oh, that's awesome, man. And like bumping it, just walking along and saying, okay, there's Scotty Young, there's Mike Norton, there's Tim Seeley, all these guys who I've, you know, I've read all their books, and just seeing them in the flesh is just mind-blowing. That's a, What other American podcasts uh, do you listen to? Um, 11 o'clock. Okay. Uh, Word Balloon. Uh, oh, yeah, podcast as awesome. well. Awesome. Yeah, you. um when I get time and then there's just some other ones that aren't comic related that I like oh I'm curious about even the night comic related ones well there's a a good Australian one called The Watcher Podcast which is it's all pop culture but they do comics and they do movies and TV really nice guys I've been on it a couple of times myself good to know yeah they're really good guys yeah excellent alright alright that's your your, uh, recommendation very good excellent Andrew Shaw it's a pleasure to meet you safe trip back yeah thank you and uh, I hope you have uh, the opportunity to at least come to the the states again and uh, you know I'll have to bring the family with me next time probably and stuff but yeah, let us know uh, the next convention and stuff, and hopefully, uh, you yeah, know, we'll run into you. each other. Definitely. Absolutely, good meeting, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome to meet you. 
Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, a panel that uh, Gene Ha did. It was a spotlight on Gene Ha. It was uh, the first day of the convention. Um, I'm sorry that the sound isn't a little bit better. It's uh, from the audience, but I think you can hear Gene and I very clearly, and it's a great career retrospective on Gene, and it also promotes Gene's Kickstarter campaign, which is underway, and uh, we talk about his new uh, Monster Hunter book, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I think you will enjoy the conversation and uh, hearing about uh, Gene's uh, book. You might even want to contribute to his Kickstarter campaign. But uh, it was a pleasure to moderate this spotlight panel on uh, one of Chicago's own great artists, Gene Ha, now on Word Balloon. My name's John Suntress. Uh, I'll be the moderator today. I'm uh, the host of a pan- uh, podcast called Word Balloon. And uh, I'm very happy that uh, our guest uh, asked me to moderate today. And it's a pleasure to introduce him. A great career, uh, one of Chicago's very own. It's Gene Hahn. What we have on the screen up there is the first drawing of mine that I still have that my mom did not throw up when I was in about seventh grade. <laughs> how early? How early did you start? When did you start doing? Ah, uh, as soon as I saw my brother's drawing. So um, when they got into grade school, I remember taking their paper, you know, seeing them drawing the back of worksheets, and I drew too. So. How many kids in the film? Uh, I have two brothers. Cool. And they both drew? Uh, yes, yeah. And uh, they both drew better than me, but I was I just had less of a social life, especially when high school rolled around, so I just stuck with it more. That's cool. <laughs> and so what, uh, what are we looking at here exactly? Uh, let me see. Um, I have a subscription to National Geographic and little cards you get month or every month with the animals on it, so I knew how to draw a snake. Uh, <laughs> I know how to draw flames, kind of like John Byrne did inside of his X-Men issues. And then I was really, really into Dungeons and Dragons. So, um, yeah, headless wizard fighting a flaming saint. Like, there's no story behind it. I just thought it would look cool. So what was the uh, impetus from going from just drawing for fun to thinking, I'd like to try and do this for a career? Uh, just not thinking school was fun and then thinking, wow, if I could just doodle for a living like I do during class, and yeah, that'd be a great job. So, teenagers? Uh, earlier, yeah. Uh, and my mom actually gave me um, a little lecture. I remember this was a little before Christmas because she was buying Mego figures, me and my brother, um, about how artists tend to go insane and cut their ears off. So <laughs> <not sure. laughs> was, uh, were their favorite superheroes right off the bat for you? Um, See. Uh, the ones I saw on TV and stuff like that. Uh, this is the when they did. They were doing rebroadcast when I was a kid of the very first Marvel cartoons where they had a uh, Jack Kirby drawings that they then uh, just move one arm on and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Tilt him forward so that he's running and stuff. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. Absolutely, the Marvel superheroes. Absolutely. Yeah, both seeing when Captain America throws his mighty shield. <laughs> <laughs> those who chose to oppose his might must yield. <laughs> <laughs> I would say uh, Submariner fan. Stronger than a whale, he could swim in <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, that was that was a crazy comic. Dean Wormer from Animal House was Iron Man. I didn't know I that. Got to save Pepper. <laughs> Good okay. stuff, man. I'm not trying to imagine the Dean saving Pepper. <laughs> exactly, man. No, that's totally true. The uh, so so what led to uh, you know the gumption to to try and crack in and break in with uh, one of the big one of the big boys. Uh, what happened is I literally had this path where I told my parents I wanted to be an artist, and they both told me this was a really bad idea. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let me see. After that, uh, I then kind of slowly went from lawyer because I didn't know what the word lawyer meant, uh, but I knew my parents liked the sound of it. 
<laughs> so I said that for a while. I literally for years, I like for two years, I had no idea what the word meant. I just knew they wear suits and my parents like them. It's, it's good. Um, then I changed that to architect, and I had no idea why my dad did this. This is ama- an amazing thing. But when I got to high school and said I wanted to apply for art school, my dad was a doctor. Uh, very well educated, all our friends were educated in our town. And I said I wanted to go to art school, He's, he agreed to pay for it. I don't know why. I have, I, to this day, I still have no idea why he agreed to it. Because he, he still think, he still thought, to this dying day, he thought it was the dumbest idea he ever heard. <laughs> I should say, I blame you for Chicago, but you grew up uh, in another state. Yeah, uh, I was born in Chicago. Other than confusion. Go on. Yeah, I was born in Ravenswood Hospital inside of Chicago, which is no longer around. Uh, but I was, grew up in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Very cool. Notre Dame country. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. So when so, I say, yeah, a lot of Notre Dame professors among my, my parents' friends. So we should move on, I think, to the next... Uh, oh. Yeah. So, uh, five years in a four-year art school program, and I thought I was uh, just incredibly talented and skilled. I learned so much, and no problem getting my first job in comics. And, uh, yeah, this was Marvel's reaction to my samples, where you can see everything is checked off, except for the stuff where they execute on... This doesn't even require a checkoff. This part is underlined to say this is even more important than checking it off. And it's just explaining why I wasn't ready for a job inside of Marvel Comics yet. And I want to emphasize uh, the submissions editor was completely correct. I was not ready yet, even after five years of art school. What does that note say on the bottom? Uh, let's pull that up. Okay. Check out our submissions guide. We hope it's helpful. Just keep in mind that your perspective should remain consistent within each panel. Each panel. <laughs> I was known for being really good at perspective inside of college. Uh, that was a problem. Your textures were also inconsistent, but your detailing and storytelling were quite good. That's the only thing he was wrong about. <laughs> try again, and I did. Um, well, that's yeah. So rather than like taking it as a negative, the try again, you obviously took okay. Well. Actually, I just uh, sat on my couch for like two days, except when I had to go to class. I wasn't out of school yet. Yeah, um, I was bummed. But then uh, Neil Posner wrote, from DC wrote me a letter. I sent, as my backup plan, I sent samples to DC too. <laughs> and he said, you're not ready for DC. But we'd like to see more samples. And can I send you a script? Fantastic. Yeah, and that wow. one encouraging. Oh, by the way, I want to take a break here for now. Just to say that there's a third person on the stage. And this is Rose McLean, who does uh, color assist with me. And I'm going to show, be showing some of her work with me later, uh, especially at the end when I announce my big, giant project. So. Very cool. So let's let's move on to uh, some work in the '90s. Uh, yeah. DC. Somewhere inside my house, I hope I still have a folder with my really bad DC uh, Marvel samples. This is close. Like, yeah, this is an unpublished story from DC uh, for this thriller comic book spin-off uh, Salvo. I think he's Tony Salvatini, and he's a tough guy who. Uh, Shoots guns, which you know, you get that from the 90s. Theme. I was going to say consistent for the 90s, that's good. Yeah. But yeah, you can see there's a little bit of. Uh, man, I drew some long legs and short torsos back then. <laughs> there's some rockiness with the ankles and the hips, especially. Um, but he's right, the detailing is good, and I did learn enough by this point to keep the perspective mostly consistent inside the same hand, so it did get better. Very cool. Um, give it a few years, and uh, at least by my eyes, he got a lot better than that. So, so was the score the score that DC sent you? Was it? Uh, oh, I thought I assume we're moving on to. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I can tell you about the script. Yeah, um, what happened is uh, uh, Neil Posner asked me, um, 
what's a uh, character that I like in DC? And I said, um, I was a huge fan of Green Lantern all through growing up. Uh, I love Mike Grell. So he sent me Mike, uh, he sent me some Gerard Jones scripts. And I'm not going to name the artist on this, but um, the script, this, I had this huge insight into how comics work and how writers sometimes have to really tailor their scripts to the particular artist. Uh, Jerry said uh, in his script, please, 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 there's, this is a five-page dialogue, se uh, dialogue sequence. Don't just take the same three faces and photostat it over and over and over again. I need original drawings for every panel. And then months later, I got to see the actual issue, and he photostatted the faces over and over again. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, you got a you got a big break. Uh, then uh, as far as your first uh, some of your first DC work. Oh yeah, um, I actually did end up working for the Green Lantern office with um, uh, Dooley and uh, current uh, Superman group editor uh, Eddie Brigantic, who was an assistant back then. Um, yeah, and uh, I then got to do things like draw um, Green Lantern fighting a Christmas tree, which worked better than you would think it would. <laughs> was this Kyle Rayner or was this Hal Jordan? This or was Hal Jordan. John Stewart? Or? Uh, this was uh, the last days of the original run of Hal Jordan before he became paralyzed. Yeah, 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 before he, yeah, before all the crazy things happened and then uh, Kyle Rayner took over for him. Uh, and I can say that also, this is just before the Death of Superman sequence. And uh, the issue after me was the issue where Green Lantern crossed, crossed over with um, the Reign of the Superman. Uh, so therefore, the issue where I left is where the sales that of uh, Green Lantern like tripped. Which yeah, is the Mongol destroyed uh, Coast City with the cyborg Superman, as I remember. Yeah, I did like one. I did like a three, uh, one page of that, and then the next issue, yeah, the crossover with that. So um, yeah, either the Superman crossover increased sales or me leaving increased sales. I'm not sure which. <laughs> But you got a big opportunity uh, following uh, that event, working with uh, one of the one of the great writer editors over at Great Oh yeah. Um, so uh, over the next few years, I got jobs with um, got to do projects for like uh, X Men, the X Men Annual. Um, I got to draw um, an X Men miniseries, some more uh, DC stuff, some Malibu, and uh, but then uh, the greatest editor I've ever met, Archie Goodwin, called me up and said. Uh, I'd like to do a short story with you inside of Showcase 95, and I will get you any writer you want to work with that we can get. So I said, Alan Moore! And he said, he doesn't work with DC anymore, can you name anybody else? <laughs> and I said, well then the next one on the list would literally be you, Archie Goodwin. He was like, seriously, who? You, you, really? And he didn't believe me, but he did. And that's when this story came along. Everybody hip to Archie Goodwin as a writer as well as an editor? Great stuff on, you know, uh, Warren, creepy, eerie, and all that stuff. Not, not to mention all the DC work that he did over the years. Yeah, I'm gonna say even his like '60s stuff reads remarkably modern. Yeah, but so um, yeah, he. Uh, so I did this story for him, which is about um, a new inmate inside of Arkham Asylum, and uh, his introduction to the other inmates there. And there's a little twist at the end, and we're going into his mind as he goes a little crazier for being inside Arkham for too long. Oh, and this scene was drawn uh, before computers, and I had to figure out a theory on how you would do warped uh, fisheye lens perspective. The curved lines on that page are all sideways. I didn't own a computer, and I didn't even have a fancy calculator at that point, so I just sat around with um, charts and made a graph and just <laughs> made, yeah. and did the numbers by hand. Wow, <laughs> man. And also, also, I had a lot. I was in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where I had a lot of young college-age friends who looked vaguely super heroic. So it was really easy getting lots and lots of photo reference back then. 
So, mm -hmm. what what made your style go to a more photorealistic style? Uh, again, I'm not going to name names, but it was unhappiness with some of the colors I worked back with then, and some of the inkers. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, the first inker I worked with professionally um, was really hip to what they called the style back then, before it became the image style, and he would create random. Uh, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld style highlights on my drawings, where I did one of them, and just be like, yeah, that's cool having a highlight there, I'm gonna put it right there, it's like, it literally looked, there's a guy I drew, his face was mostly in shadow, and the anchor decided that the coolest thing you could do was then to put a round starburst in the middle of his forehead, and it looked like he had a bandage all of a sudden. I understand. So then, going to this style, did, did that mean that you were working with inkers? You do it all yourself? Uh, that was kind of it. And I'm going to say, since I have met a lot of inkers that I do like working with, well, actually, especially Andrew Peepoy, but um, I like being able to control how the image comes out. And just, it's been an expanding path where I've taken over more of the inking and then more of the coloring so I control how the final effect comes out. Understood. Very, very cool. Yeah, man. And then uh, moving on, we, uh, we go to another great demographic. I mean, that's oh. the thing. Gene's been in the company with so many great collaborators, uh, you know, over the years as far as writers go. Yeah. Um, I just want to show something here. Sure. Oh, okay. By the way, the twist at the end, he's not a real inmate. He's a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, now we don't want to, like, dive through uh, the quarter bits to find the edge you his There's also a page that I didn't show yet. True. But, uh, I, oh, back then we used to use faxes on thermal paper. So, oh, back in the old days. But so you can actually read it. I typed it up. Um, and so that's Archie's script? Yeah, that's his script. First page. And I highlight this area here. Uh, this was one of the most important things that ever happened to me in comics because yeah. Archie explained why he was doing everything on the page. Because once again, you have to tailor the script to the artist. And he knew Gene is a young guy who doesn't quite understand what I'm doing yet. And by explaining everything, it's something like, oh, I need to change how I do a story, not to make every scene into, you know, not, I, some scenes are psychological, they're quiet, they're conversations. I don't have to use the most dramatic shots to get the scene across. And Archie explained, here's what I'm going for on this page. So that, that'll, you have to tailor your shots for that. And actually, um, one of the scenes, let me see, this one here, I had all these really weird, crazy, dramatic perspectives, and Archie said, no, this scene has to be very quiet. We're setting up the crazy stuff for later. If you do the crazy stuff now, you ruin the story. Yeah, yeah, so fortunately he caught that on the pencil stage instead of the ink stage, which is happening in later projects, but... Yeah, uh, again, the writer... Yeah, once you figure out what the writer wants, that really helps you do the story. Um, and there's just such an important lesson that not every story should be drawn the same way. And also, scripts come in, in various styles within the basic format. Was that tough to adapt to in terms of working with different writers and stuff, or was it pretty straightforward? Uh, I've mo except for like one writer, no, two, two writers. I've almost always worked inside the full script method. Um, and then uh, sometimes it comes as a shock when I get the dialogue where it's not at all what I expected. Or sometimes it's like, uh, I think a villain is kind of dark and mysterious and morbid, and then he comes out with these really, he starts cackling, and it's like, oh, I didn't know he was going to be cackling this thing. I would have drawn him totally different if I knew he was going to be cackling. Okay. You know, so did you do a couple Marvel style uh, books? Plot? Just a few, yeah, yeah, just a few. But yeah, I don't like working that way because if I'm not clear on what the writer wants, essentially, the more writer explains, and Bill Willingham is here, and I love his stuff because uh, Channing scripts are just the best thing in the world. Just where you get a feel for what the writer wants, and you get across what they want better that way. 
Well, even the example you've shown us right now with, with what Archie is saying, and for I'm recording this for our podcast listeners as well. Uh, Gene, what I'm trying to do with this page is establish in the reader's mind an impression that Bane is some kind of inmate in his cell. At story's end, we'll see that this is really his office and he's an Arkham psychiatrist, as your spoiler. To aid this shirt fan scene in this battle should give the impression that they are gray. Uh, our gray are a uniform issue when there actually might be another color. By keeping them in shattered areas, we can cheat on the color area of shirt wear and the name tag would obviously show, wouldn't show. So yeah, that's obviously helpful and helps, you know, kind of perpetuate the mystery until we get the big reveal at the end. Very cool. I like it. Very cool. Well, uh, excuse me. We, uh, we have a, sir, you have a question. What book is this from? Oh, uh, Showcase 95, I think it's issue 11. Thank you. There you go. Excellent. No, and you can't go wrong with Archie and Gene together. Right. And yeah. then we uh, move on to, uh, was this, this was Dark Horse? That you worked with uh, another uh, another very great writer. Oh, yeah. Um, I got to work with Harlan Ellison. And, uh, yeah, essentially, I'm going to say, I didn't know Bill Willingham was going to be here, so what I'm doing is I'm bringing up annoying things writers do, and then the reasons they do it are sometimes excellent reasons. And I would, Bill doesn't actually do a lot of annoying things as a writer, and I would, I would have dug up something to make fun of him. It would have been hard, but I would have done it if I'd known here. I told you I was going to be at your panel, and you scoffed. You didn't believe me. I didn't believe him. He's a writer. He's lying. <laughs> okay. So we. So you. You got a chance to work with Harlan Nelson. This was the Dream Corridor collection of stories, but yours specifically was. Um, yeah, Silver Corridor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I got to draw the actual Dream Corridor from the story Silver Corridor that the whole uh, the whole anthology was named after. And uh, yeah, this story and the one with Archie represent the, um, the high point of my anal retentive, super fine cross-hacking stage, which I literally had to stop because my hands were shaking and I was getting nerve damage. Really? Yeah. Wow. I realized I would not be able to keep it up for like maybe four more years. It would just rock my arm. Now, now someone else scripted uh, the comic script adaptation, oh. but how many, like, how involved did Harlan get in the, in the process? Uh, he, approved the, he approved the story. And he had to write an introduction to the story. Okay. Um, and he's more famous now than he was then, but he was pretty famous th uh, then. Uh, this story was written by Mark Wade. There you go. Wow. And, and two, uh, you know, Harlan's certainly a very pointed and outspoken guy and writer of many comic books himself. And uh, so kind of cool that you had this opportunity. But uh, did, did you ever get any uh, direct feedback in terms of, you know, did he like it? Oh, yeah, he did. Excellent. Yeah. Um, oh, I should mention also my first meeting with Harlan Ellison. Okay, well, first, I, I, uh, my first, one of my first phone calls was, I heard that he had a triple bypass. And I thought, well, he's going to be in the hospital for a few days, but I need some information from his office. He has an assistant. So I'll call up two days after his operation before he gets back, get the information, and that way I won't bug him. And uh, call his office, and I hear this voice say, hello? And it's like, Harlan, you're back? And he says, Gene? What are you doing? You crazy? I just had an operation. I almost died. You trying to kill me? And I explained, yeah, um, I explained I was calling now specifically because I thought he'd still be in the hospital so it would be safe. And he calmed down. So then I got for him. Yeah, for him. For him, he calmed down. It was like February. So I, but later that summer, I got to meet him at the, uh, the former Chicago Comic Con, which was held near the airport uh, in the summer. So to surprise him, I got in line. And there's probably like uh, 40 people, just waited. Then when I got up to the front of the line, I introduced myself as, Hi Harlan. 
Even, uh, we've never met in person before, but I'm the guy who tried to kill you in February. <laughs> and his reaction was, uh, you'll have to explain this to uh, listeners. Like he went for my throat and then up to my throat. His assistant grabbed him. His assistant grabbed him and saved my life. And I was like, no, I'm Gene, I'm Gene High. I called you at the wrong time. That's how I tried to kill you. I'm so sorry. Also, there must have been a list of 50 other people. Yeah. Various people trying to kill him and he needed to attack me now. Harlan's an angry man and that's a compliment, really, when you consider his temperament normal. Yeah. No, I, I, I suffered uh, Harlan Ellis and I are as well when I first started doing work alone. I, the editor of uh, Drink Quarter was Diana Schutz, and I had her on the show. People were waiting for volume two, and she just kind of casually mentioned that volume two was coming out later that year. And this was still in the message board days, and all these people were asking on Harlan's message board, when is volume two coming out? We heard it on a podcast. What is a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, Harlan, it's kind of like an internet radio show. Well, I went to the guy's website. I don't know how to get it. Oh, can someone send me a CD? So I sent him a CD. I was thrilled that I had upset Harlan Ellison. <laughs> we should mention, if he is not trying to kill you, Harlan Ellison is one of the most charming people you can meet. <laughs> Great interview. There's tons of YouTube video of Harlan doing interviews. And really, if you have not experienced it, plus a great documentary as well. An amazing uh, creator, and that's barely scratching the surface. Yeah, but guys, he's, he's, he's literally more than twice my age, and he will kill you if he does try to kill you if his assistant doesn't get him. So don't get me. <laughs> There's a lot of energy in that body. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So then when we move on to uh, a big uh, moment. Okay. Go out, go okay. I'm just going to point out here. I do every link of that chain mail. I was insane back then. <laughs> so what you, uh, we're, we're getting on now to America's Best Comics. I want to do one more thing. Do it. Okay, so I drew the story about 1996, uh, and then all that it needed to do, all it needed for publication, was the introduction by Harlan. Can you see those two dates there? Oh the first date is the copyright date when I drew the story. The second one's the copyright date from when Harlan finally wrote the introduction. <laughs> True. So, if you look back at the story, you'll see that there's a lot of scenes of old guys in, uh, in their underwear. It's kind of loin things, but it's old guys in their underwear. I literally had a friend of mine who's uh, at that time my age, now, um, pose in his uh, tiny whiteies on camera for me so I could get figure out what a body at that age looked like. And he would a friend, obviously. Yeah, he was a, he's a very nice guy. Uh, and then for the next few months, he would keep on showing up at the comic shops asking, hey, has that Marlon Ellison story come out? And for all I know, he spent the next 10 years doing that. Finally, in 2007, said, yes, it's out! But I don't know. I can't, it, it's so long ago, I can't even remember. I don't remember his last name, and I can't contact him. So. Well, then we move on uh, to America's Best Comics and, and your uh, wonderful beginning of your collaboration with Alan Moore on, on Top Ten. What, how did uh, Top Ten happen? How did you get involved in it? How was it presented to you? Oh, uh, well, um, I'm going to totally name drop here now, but um, I, was, I am friends with Alex Ross, and he was doing covers for uh, Rob Liefeld's Maximum Press. And I said, well, that's so awesome, because uh, you know there are so many authors I read as kids. I'm just going to name drop here. The two that I still follow, Alan Moore, Bill Willingham. You're working with Alan Moore. It's a dream come true. And he said, if you want an Alan Moore story, why aren't you trying to get one? And I was like, I have no good answer for that. So uh, I started contacting Maximum Press. They said they liked my stuff. 
uh, and uh, they were trying to get a story to me, and then they collapsed before they could do that. Alan was doing Supreme for them, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, then I... Uh, Superman kind of, you know, icon. Yeah, but I, I ran with Alex's idea and um, went up to the next place Alan Moore went to. So, America's Best Comics of Wildstorm. Uh, the editor knew me. Alan Moore had no idea who I was. I sent samples. He mailed them to England. Was that Scott Dunbar? Yeah, Scott Dunbar. Scott Dunbar, absolutely. Very cool. Yeah, so, so today. So he did, and he sent, he sent your samples to Alan? Yeah, and Alan liked them. And uh, I got to see the uh, America's Best Comics proposal. And I thought, wow, I really, really hope I get that Promethea book. I was going to ask, did the kind of which of these interest you, or did Alan kind of say, I want you for this? Alan picked him up. Okay. Yeah, um, and I can say he definitely picked the right guys because um, there's a lot of cityscapes inside of Top Ten, even though I don't enjoy drawing them. I'm really good at it. And it turned out J.H. Williams is just amazing at doing those crazy... Ethereal. Um, yeah, ethereal, yeah. but also... Symbolism-filled, uh, numerological-based yes. comic books, and it's like I actually enjoy numerology and symbolism and mysticism just abstractly because of my Dungeons and Dragons background. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I could not have done what Jage wanted. Understood. So top ten, and people know top ten in their audience. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what a great series! Uh, you know, no kidding. Hill, Hill Street Blues meets uh, superheroes. Is you know that shows you my age. So I don't know what's in. <laughs> What's a better example of that? I don't know. I'm, I'm blanking right now. All the cop shows that are on right now, shame on me. I don't know. <laughs> but regardless, uh, great opportunity. So that it was you, Alan, and Xander Cannon. And how, and how was that team put together, you and Xander? Uh, oh, Xander was a last-minute addition. Um, so uh, I'd moved to Minneapolis. My wife bitterly remembers the, uh, moving there and enjoying the winters um, to work with a college friend of mine. And then it turned out, he, his schedule didn't work out. I moved to Minnesota to work with him, and he couldn't. So I needed someone else to help me out. And uh, I learned about Xander a few years ago from a signing at a comic shop uh, we'd done together. And I thought, well, he's here. Maybe he can help me out. And we just started working together. And it was a mess at first. Really? In what, in what ways? Yeah. Um, we, didn't, we didn't know how to work together yet. He'd never worked together with a collaborator that way. Um, and I didn't know what to do either. So at first, I did layouts and he did finishes, and then we'd switch over, and then we'd just do this mix of things. This was happening while the book was going on. Yeah. So if you go back to the first issues of Top Ten, you'll, you'll see a switch in style on page 13 of the first issue. And that's where we started trying to figure out our collaboration together. And it didn't really settle until the beginning of the second issue. And that's where we finally figured out, oh, Gene does details really well. We should, he should do finishes. Xander's really good at storytelling. He should do layouts. And it's kind of like, took a while. That's excellent, man. And then, you know, one of the great things about Top Ten was this uh, use of, uh, you know, you'd get these big, giant scenes, and it was all the uh, Easter eggs that you would find in them because we were learning about, and I always get it wrong, is it Megalopolis? Or, that's uh, that's Judge Red. Which one? Neopolis. Neopolis, thank you. I get my Opolis as well. It's the same origin as Naples. Of course, there you go. Yeah, that's why they call it Neapolitan. It makes sense. It makes sense. But the, that was the great thing was seeing the city beyond the police force of superheroes, but even just the regular uh, people that live there. And and you've got these amazing giant scenes, city scenes, that the billboards were telling their own story. And it was kind of the language I think that that Alan and Dave Gibbons kind of established in Watchmen, but it seemed to be more realized in Top Ten and took more of a. While, while the main story is going on, here's these other bits of business that were entertaining, but not necessary to to forward the, the main point of the story. 
Yeah, um, yeah he's, uh, sometimes the background characters would have uh, common themes that fit in with the stuff happening in the foreground. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, its own entertainment, its own texture and stuff like that. Just a life of the city. And I think sometimes just, you know, sometimes you want to be very direct with things. There's the whole uh, Sin City, you strip out everything from the story and it works beautifully. Uh, and that's not what I do especially, that's not what I do better than other people. Um, the thing I do really well is just adding these details that kind of create harmonies and just all these pieces that fit together really tightly. Um, if you just take a drawing line and take, which is really, well, I guess I could do simple, but I'm not sure if I'd stand out that way. Oh, um, let me give a story of this page, by the way. This is the full script for this page, which is just basically telling me do a cityscape with the, at most a sliver of uh, sky and otherwise just as many buildings in the office as you can fit into one scene looking downward. And if you think about what view of a city has the most buildings in it, it's being in the sky and looking downward because the whole picture frame is filled with uh, buildings. What happened is Alan got sick and he had a horrible case of the flu and he needed to slow me down long enough so that he could recover before writing the next page of the script. So that's what he wrote. Now, it turned out to be a great story. Uh, you know, uh, it's considered by many of them the best issue of Top Ten, but it was really painful at the time. But it's also the only page of that book that I have framed on my wall. Really? Yeah, it's in my uh, dining room. Good guy. I got to tell you, this is my favorite uh, page of top ten, and it's uh, and I forget what issue we see this. Uh, same issue. It is the same. Issue. Okay. Yeah, actually, I forgot it's the same issue too. Um, this is the Trans World Station, uh, where characters, uh, just like in a train station, can jump from place to place. But in this case, the places are worlds. Yeah, dimension. and dimensions. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and just all the bits of business that are going on, and and. What kind of detail went into, because these, again, these, these are like elaborate kind of, you know, scenes and stuff, and, and yes, there's, you know, things going on in the forefront, but it's all the business in the back, so how much of that was coming from Ellen? Uh, on this page, okay, the pages came inside of badges, so uh, this is kind of what it looked like when he sent it, and I left a blank space there, because when I first got the script, the next page hadn't been written yet. And there wasn't, there was a lot of detail about what the place was like, but not a huge list of the characters I should throw in the background. So I just had a, I knew there were supposed to be characters from other dimensions, so you can see, uh, like, uh, next to the information booth, you can see the Mirror Mirror Star Trek crew, uh, <laughs> Mixius Pitalik and Bat Mike both come from other dimensions, uh, Run Lola Run was a hot movie at the time, and she went through, lived the same life over and over again as if she was jumping dimensions. Uh, so yeah, all these characters like that from the time. That's fantastic. Yeah, but then, uh, what happens, then, after this, Alan wrote the next page of script, not having seen my artwork. And, uh, okay, so that's the next page of script, or at least the next few panels. And I'm going to show you this close-up here. So this is the script for the next page. So uh, maybe we also see some of the Apocalypse variant X-Men, which uh, you can see on the previous page, hidden somewhere back there, uh, behind the information desk. Or perhaps a couple of amalgams. Imps like Mixius Pitalik or Batmite. <laughs> maybe Wanda 3 from the fifth dimension. Is ever all the detail is entirely up to you. Now, well, this is really, this is terrifying to me because I, um, when I draw the previous page, I thought, I can't think of any other dimension hopping characters I could possibly throw into a scene. I'll just wait for Alan to come in and rescue the day with the next page of script and list who I should draw next. And yeah, there was almost nothing <laughs> that I hadn't drawn. What did he say when he, when he saw, did he, did he talk about any of these specific pages or did he? Not too much, no. Really? no. Yeah, um, yeah, we only talked like maybe a few, like every few issues on the phone. Uh-huh. Um, but the thing is also, it was a huge amount of trust there. When he said, is ever all the details are entirely up to you, 
he knew that even if he if I he threw in a detail I couldn't use or um, whatever, uh, if he threw in a huge crowd scene and just gave the biggest description, I would come through. So while it seems like this would be like a mistake by him, this was him purposely just working on what he knew he could depend on. And this is why he picked me for top ten instead of Promethea. There you go. Well, you know, honestly, I thought the three of you, including Xander as well, it really was such a great book. It was fun to see Xander then take over the art chores on Smacks. Did you help at all on Smacks? Or? Not at all. Okay. I should, uh, I should also mention, uh, Xander was the, probably the single most important person in teaching me about comics. After Archie Goodwin's script, the most important, the, the more important thing was Xander just explaining the scripts, Alan Moore's scripts to me and saying, Oh, no, don't do that. This Alan's trying to do this at this point. And essentially it was like having Archie Goodwin commentary on the already chatty Alan Moore scripts. And then he explained, uh, look, he's, he's listing the order of the heads inside the description panel. Then he has word balloons. But notice that they, in every case in an Alan Moore script, they always show up in exactly the same order as the appearance of the heads. So the tails don't tangle. It makes it a lot easier on you and the letter if you follow it. When you do a scene where you don't do that, like you're trying to do now, Gene, that messes all that up. So yeah, uh, Xander was, a huge, was incredibly important. It does surprise me. I know uh, you guys did a volume of Top Ten, just you and Xander. Oh yeah. And that was really great. And for a long time, I would see Xander at shows, and he would show me the breakdowns of, of pages as they were progressing and stuff. And it was really fun to, to get this preview of what was coming. And really, uh, if you haven't read uh, Gene and Xander's volume of Top Ten, it was the third story. Uh, I forget the uh, Paul DiFilippo. Uh, oh yeah, there's a yeah. Uh, for, Beyond the furthest precinct. Beyond the furthest precinct was the second one, and yeah. they did the third one. Yeah, we did the third one. And, and it's, it's season three, I think. Yeah, so top ten, season three. Look for it. And did they ever collect the change? No, we only did four issues, uh, and then uh, I signed a DC exclusive deal, thinking I can finish up the top ten run while I'm under a DC exclusive. And DC pretty much decided, you know what? We only have Gene for two years. Uh, we need to get our money's worth out of him while we're paying him a higher page rate. And that doesn't make any sense to pay him that much money to draw a top ten story. So I got a lot of great stories. You know, I did some Justice League and Superman and stuff like that. But, yeah, they just never approved a top ten thing while I was doing it. And then after that, I just kind of wanted to move on to other things afterwards. I, I noticed, too, uh, in doing uh, Word Balloon this week and uh, seeing what was out in print, there's a new volume of the top ten. Oh, uh, let me see. They... Uh, yeah, there's a collected uh, trade paperback? Yeah. Yeah, the collected the first 12 issues. That's right. So that's available, and I'm sure you can find that at the show this weekend. Yeah. Something to look forward to. I have it at my table. Or you can get it directly <laughs> from Gene. There you go. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, you mentioned Justice League, and, and that uh, dovetails into another good collaboration with uh, a, a great comics writer and great novelist as well. Did you want to do something before we get to that? Oh, uh, I can just... just uh, no, it's just the scenes here. I'm just going to say here. Yeah, please. In this scene here, we're... Uh, this is from the 49ers. And he says that he wants a, a train car full of cartoon animals and friendly ghosts. And, okay, can people here name the famous friendly ghost characters? Okay, who else? Slimer. It's, it's really hard. So after that, I started having to make friendly ghost characters up. So uh, a kind of a version of Dead Man, Thomas Jefferson, and then I ran out. <laughs> the three of them are the start of my favorite joke. Thomas Jefferson, Dead Men, and Casper walking. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm worried about time, so I want to get to Justice League. And okay. I see that we're, we're kind of pressing. Oh. This was a really experimental issue. I don't know if you guys remember this particular issue, uh, Brad's uh, Justice League run. But uh, he and Gene won the Eisner for it, which 
which is one, you know one of the uh, several ISOs that, that Gene has won. Yeah. Now I want you to imagine being a computer artist and getting the simplest draw script ever, and it was so simple that I actually called Brad and said, "We can't do this. I'm not doing any work." <laughs> so here's the first page, mostly black, then a little bit of a head shows up, and as the page progressed, he's trapped underground with um, Vixen. It's red, uh, red arrow, Roy Harper, oh, and Vixen. Uh, members of the Justice League, and they're they're trapped underground. Go on. Yeah, and as the pages go along, the panels get smaller in the sense of not more panels per page, but more white gap between the panels. Which I, I was just like, okay, this is just cheating. I feel I mean, it's, it's, the story works beautifully, but I still feel like I'm cheating by drawing less on every page. But that's what he wanted, and it really worked really well. So yeah, I really thought you know. Now, did you draw? Full images, and then obviously no. I just had to draw what was in the panel, and it was like, yeah. So I'm like doing half a page of art for one, and I'm still getting pages the same amount of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, it worked for the story theme. Absolutely. And by talking on the phone, I got, I found out what the writer was intending, and it's something that I didn't think was going to work. But he just said, please trust me on this. And he had a vision. He had, he's able to think very visually for a novelist. Um, yeah, this is this is one of those great examples of art and story really coming together, and especially in a way that can only be done in comics. I mean, if they tried to do this story on television or a film, it would obviously be lit differently. Yeah. You'd still have a bit more sense of space or lack of it. But this is a good way to kind of deal with confined space. Uh, does anyone? I mean, to show the rest of the artwork, I'm going to have to give away spoilers. So it's, I'm just going to have to. I don't. You're they fine. Die. I'm leave now, but no spoilers. <laughs> they only die. Yeah. Oh, this is page three. It's not a spoiler yet, but yeah, here's the scene of set up with him underground, and then we get to the scene where he finds out why they can't escape because they've been trying to figure out how to escape, and they realize we're so pressed underground and we're so out of context, we don't realize that we're both trapped upside down, and when the water starts hitting the top of their head before it hits their, their knees, they then realize they're upside down, and which way, how, which direction to escape to. I'm worried about time management, Gene. I wanted to. Okay, so go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I, I oh. no. I, there, yeah, here's some, some roughs of some uh, covers that Gene and Jenna over the years. Yeah, let me, uh, this one is just going to show the process. Okay, let's, uh, okay. it's going to be an animated GIF, but if any of you guys work inside of uh, web design or stuff like that, you'll know that animated GIFs are the most labor intensive way of doing a video possible. I'm good at that. Yeah, this is how I, I create a page. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. So, uh, <coughs> these slides are done by a guy in Texas named Sean Steven Struble. But other than that, I had no assistance. Uh, the next one I'm going to show, I'm going to skip the Wonder Woman one, which uh, last by Rose, but then I'm going to show a page from my next project, which is the big announcement I've been talking about all this time. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead, if we cycle through that at least once. Skip the Wonder Woman if we can get past it. Again, uh, animated GIFs, GIFs use a huge amount of resources, so it's going to take just a second to get past it. But yes, this, this is what I'm working on next. And you'll see that it's a big departure from my previous styles. More cartoony, a little more like uh, animated kind of uh, inspired? I was really influenced by Pixar, and I'm just like, uh, especially The Incredibles, and I thought the characters I just worked so beautifully. Interesting. Flat, uh, flats by uh, Rose, when it was all flat color. And then uh, this is how I started laying in color on the page. Yeah, I've seen it digitally, and it really is amazing looking. Uh, what's the title? Uh, the title is May, spelled M-A-E. And that's the free comic you're all going to get. Woo! Oh, yeah. 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 
And at the very last minute, a friend said, hey, that fat guy needs a bit of dialogue, so that's why that appears at the very last thing in the animation. <laughs> Look at that. So tell us, uh, give us a little 10 cent tour of uh, the story of May. Uh, May is the story of uh, two sisters. Uh, the older sister, at around the age of 13, eight years ago, found a doorway to another world. And she just stopped coming home. She became a great fear of the other world by the age of 18. But everything comes undone by the age of 21. And the story starts with the return to Indiana. And her younger sister, May, had to pick her up from the county sheriff's office. <laughs> and uh, if you remember at Fables Con, I spent a lot of time in the sheriff's office and in jail, not being arrested, but because I actually wanted to take photographs to get that right. <laughs> um, so the old sister is world-weary from yeah. slaying uh, monsters? Yes, she's, she has been fighting monsters and mad scientists and having a great time until it just... Essentially, uh, the older sister is an action hero. She's not very complicated. She likes hitting things and fixing problems by hitting things. Uh, but the story's mainly about the younger sister. Yeah, it's called May, so what, yeah. uh, what's May's deal? Uh, May is the one who stayed in Indiana, actually finished school, you know, had to take, like, U.S. history and stuff like that, uh, took care of their ailing father and the family business, uh, and then this all gets kind of ripped apart when her older sister comes back, and she thinks she's left all the troubles and monsters behind her, and then it turns out the monsters follow her. And May has to help deal with these things now, too. So you've got the jaded uh, monster hunter and, and May dealing with all this brand new. And then the point of view character for the audience in oh, terms yeah. of like, what does all this mean? Yeah, uh, the way I explain this to friends is that um, there's a reason why the Hobbit is not called Gandalf. And Gandalf <laughs> is the experienced action hero, but he's not actually the interesting character in the book. He's an amusing character that has a foil, uh, but yeah, you don't want to really want a whole novel about Gandalf just being witty and saving the day every time and there's no problems he can't deal with. Uh, though May... Uh, Abby, the older sister, is not like that. She messes up all the time. She is not a genius, and the world is not built there for her to just knock down straw men. Well, yeah, and also uh, having to deal with this real world, but with the monsters from the other realm and stuff, obviously presents different problems than she was facing. Yeah. So, very cool, man. And you're doing a, a Kickstarter campaign for, uh, for this one? Uh, yes. So, um, let me just show you. Um, so, this, you may get the feeling that... Uh, being at this and then at the very end getting a sales pitch <laughs> reminds you of some type of other event you go to. <laughs> so we hope you're enjoying your condo in the morning. <laughs> and Jane, this is an incredible resort. How can I, on my salary, afford this? <laughs> so once, once I find the there it is. The computer mouse is there, but I cannot see it. Okay, hold on a second. No worries, man. I'll bam. Okay. I am now going to play you my Kickstarter video, which I promise you is more amusing than any Kickstarter video except for Frank Cho's, which if you haven't seen it, pretty funny. It's really funny. Okay, so hold on a second. Hi, I'm Jim I've done comics with some of the greatest writers in comics, and we've earned the industry's highest awards together. But now I want to do something different. I've just finished writing and drawing my dream project, a 56-plus page graphic novel and book for the first time collecting my best indie stories and sketches. It's all ready to go to print now with your help. Gene Hall, whatever happened to you? Maybe <laughs> mm, he's retired or something. Permit, gas station attendant, I'm not sure. <laughs> what? No! Let me show you what I've been doing. May spent the last eight years in small-town Indiana, finishing school, taking care of her ailing father, and wondering where her older sister disappeared. 
Then, Abby returns. She claims she's been off in a distant world full of adventure and monsters. The tales are hard to believe, at least until those monsters show up, too. So, will this book have sex, nudity, <laughs> drug usage, and ultraviolence? Sorry, Frank, I don't have any of that. Maze mainly aimed at young adult readers and older, books like The Hunger Games and the later Harry Potter books. It's also heavily influenced by my love of Pixar movies. While I love books aimed only at mature audiences, and it's what I've been doing for most of my career, this is different. Long time passion project for Jane. And also, the art style is really interesting. 
it is a departure in, in the best way, and it's, it's cool to see you stretch in this in this different style. Do you think beyond this story that you might like want to do other stories in this style? Uh, if I get the chance, I mean, some of the most fun I've had drawing is, um, okay, the most fun I've ever had drawing a comics project, just for the pure drawing of it, was the time I got to do a marker sketch style drawing for The Simpsons. And yeah, if you can track down, uh, I think, track it, look, Google Jiha Treehouse Pork. <laughs> or, um, what was your uh, what was the uh, story about? It was a black and white story uh, based on the silent movie Nosferatu. Fantastic! Or, yeah, Mr. Burns is a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, it's one of the most beautiful stories I've ever done. And it, it it's one of those things where I was like, if I can do this for free, it's so easy and so amusing. I can just do this forever. But well, that's it's fun to see realistic artists like yourself or a guy like Neil Adams. And when you see Neil's Bigfoot stuff, that's the you know name in the business for that kind of cartoony art stuff. It's fun to see the departure, and it, it must be freeing, and certainly, you know, easier to draw, but also, yeah, kind of liberating in a lot of ways, too. Yeah, but this is actually a lot more difficult than the Simpsons stuff, and it's about as much, well, like, considering I'm going, if you look at the colors I'm doing, it's actually more work than a regular comics page. It's it's a lot of work getting these done right. Uh, main current pages, I'll say. No, the coloring is very subtle, and yeah. again, digitally, it just pops. It, it looks, it looks gorgeous. So, I, you know, I hope that uh, whoever you've got printing and everything should, you know, everything go well Kickstarter-wise. That uh, it's able to really, you know, translate because yeah, these are gorgeous. Very black satin in a good one. Yeah. Um, and again, this is also part of that whole process where I started off with a relatively simple style. Then I went to more rendered, and I went so tight with the line work that my hands were shaking, and I knew I was going to get carpal tunnel. Um, and I ended using value and then color to kind of have more control over the final effect. And this is kind of my ultimate dream of just coloring something as beautifully as I can with a very good solid drawing. But the hard, difficult signature part of my artwork on this is getting the colors just right. And there's no way I can explain this through colors without actually coloring it more than did anyone have any questions for, for Jean about it? Yes? What's your timeline look like for it? Are you, uh, assuming Kickstarter goes well, which I think it will. Uh, Kickstarter starts today. Uh, I'm going to finish up my Kickstarter run with a trip to the Denver Comic Con uh, at the end of May. Uh, and then um, May 27th, a few days after, so I can get home and be uh, at the computer for it. Uh, the campaign ends. So I think it's a Tuesday or Wednesday. But May 27th, definitely. Okay, great. And how, how would you anticipate oh. having a printing now? Uh, the the printers say that they can get all the books back to me by August 1st if I get all the numbers in at the end of the Kickstarter campaign. And then after that, it's going to be uh, mailing the books is easy. If you want a custom sketch or some other you know special customized features, it might take a little bit longer. As long as the printers are not lying, or as long as they're right about that, uh, everything should be out by September. I think we might be doing it, let me see, some of the stuff might take, if it goes late, it might be October, but it shouldn't be too much worse than that, unless... Uh, there are giant storms, earthquakes, or um, renewed union strikes at ports. <laughs> yeah, as long as those things don't happen, we should be good. If any of you got anyone here actually uh, like self-publisher? Okay, it's it's a terrifying business. I've had friends do it, and I don't know how they how they sleep at night. It's just too much going on. This one of the reasons I want to do this as a Kickstarter is because I don't want to deal with Diamond putting this book out by myself. And just dealing with you guys, I, I trust all of you, 
and by that I mean the possibly thousands of people who buy into it, all of you more than I trust those guys. Well, and it's, it's been interesting talking to people who've done Kickstarter campaigns because um, the comics audience for their campaigns seem to be coming from Kickstarter as much, if not more, than the traditional uh, you know, diamond or, or you know, store fans and stuff like that. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, various methods of getting a comic book out online, including Kickstarter with that, are really how anybody who's starting a new project, especially young people, is really wants to start out. Um, when I was in high school, there was a little black and white revolution where people would just uh, put out a first issue in black and white and try to get it out through... Was it like five different distributors back Yeah, back then, absolutely. Yeah, and only one needed to pick you up and had okay sales. Oh, and Annette, did you have something? Got three packers, dude. Oh, woo! Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's what I mean. I mean, isn't that amazing? That, like, yeah, I mean, there's that kind of Kickstarter community and stuff that immediately responds. Yeah, um, but yeah, then they come out the first issue and disappear. You yeah, should. back then, absolutely. So. Yeah, but um, yeah, if you go online, you prove you can continuously do stuff, get things up, and then collect it. That shows other people that they can trust you, and they you should, and they show that there's a market out there for you. So yeah, yeah in the audience, absolutely, totally different age. Very very cool. Yeah, I, I understand that. It's no, I think I think it's a it's a really good story. To me, it's almost like if Buffy were to come back and Dawn were left behind, being a Buffy <laughs> fan that I am, and that Dawn would now have to deal with the stuff not having that same history. Let's say it's an alternate universe Buffy. Yeah, that's not a bad description. But we don't want uh, you know Joss Whedon and Company coming on. This is an original story. So. Oh, uh, hold on a second, let me do something. Is anybody a lawyer here? Is there a lawyer in the house? Okay. I'm afraid what's coming next. I got a pain in my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, uh, in this panel down here, I use a, a, um, a Dr. Hupo, and I have no idea if that's going to get me into trouble. <laughs> if you are a lawyer and you can reassure me that it isn't, you know, or if you can tell me how to avoid the trouble, let me know. Okay. See, now, but, sitting in the diner like that, that scene reminded me of the William Shatner Twilight Zone. Where, but uh, anybody could be named Rose Tyler. Where they got the, okay. uh, <laughs> they got the uh, fortune-telling uh, machine, mm. and they keep, can we leave now? What will keep us here? That kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it looked like now. Nick of time, I <laughs> Any other questions for, uh, for Jane? No? Excellent. You guys like it? Did you guys get a chance to thump through the book? You think it's pretty cool? Yeah. Outstanding. I see thumps up in So that's another one to look for. That really was, like I said, such a neat experimental story. Black Bear Rose? It's Black Rose. Oh, um, I don't think I have a photograph inside the set, but um, like I said, I no longer live inside of a college town filled with incredibly fit young people, uh, easily accessible. So sometimes I just have to use myself as reference. So there's a photo of me in my underwear posing as one. <laughs> 
Thank you for that mental image. Well, I'll take it. Be more memorable than anything else that might have been said today. That was great. Wonder Woman should have uh, slightly curvier legs, and that's why she has slightly skinny, bony legs. That scene. Sorry. <laughs> that's outstanding. Oh man. So this obviously has taken up a lot of your time, and Kickstarter will likely. Are there any other projects that are coming up that uh, you might want to mention? Well, I just happen to have Bill Willingham here, and um, I'm finishing up uh, my bit of the last Babels issue. So fantastic! Wow. Cool. Another great Vertigo program that uh, unfortunately has come to a close, but Bill's been telling an excellent story, and uh, also the various people that you've had working on the on the satellite books of Babels as well. So. Thank you for uh, for that wonderful series and Gene's contribution. Yeah, I feel a little guilty for I stole Gene Hall's water off his table. I'm done with it now. <laughs> we can recycle it. I can fill it. Yeah, it's true. No, I'm, I'm just gonna uh, say that there's two writers who, as a teenager, uh, going into art school, I thought I really want to work with these writers when I grow up. One was Alan Moore, um, and the other was uh, oh, Bill. <laughs> so I've gotten to work with both of them. This makes me really happy. So you know, it's it's getting to go on stage and play bass guitar with your favorite band. Well, you know, building on that, I just want to congratulate you on really what you've been doing with your career because it's one thing to get noticed for a single project, and it's another thing to follow up with with great successive projects. And really, as we all know, everything that Gene has been working on uh, since making that initial splash has just proven the ability and the consistency in, in talent and uh, stretching himself. And it, it's great to see that even with the May Project and everything, that Gene has new uh, horizons to uh, reach and uh, surpass. So congratulations and keep it up, man. Oh, thank you very much. And if I only had thicker nerve channels on my wrist, I could have kept up that cross-hatching style forever. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, guys. All right, and to wrap things up, it's a uh, post-con conversation that I just had Sunday night with uh, my friend Andy Schmidt. Andy uh, is uh, the head of comics experience and also a comic book writer and has been writing books for IDW and Marvel and uh, has a new Guardians of the Galaxy team-up book that came out this week. He and uh, his Annihilation collaborator, Andy Lanning, uh, both uh, wrote a Rocket Raccoon and the Pet Avengers crossover. So that's a lot of fun. But also, uh, through uh, Comics Experience, uh, Andy is uh, putting out a couple uh, creator-owned books that uh, is under the Comics Experience imprint. And we talk about those books. We talk about the market and what's going on. And uh, much like Jimmy Palmiotti, another industry leader that I respect his point of view of what's going on and what creators need to look out for. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Schmidt to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. Andy Schmidt is back. Welcome back to Word Balloon, Andy. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks, John. I guess uh, this is good timing because uh, we're coming uh, just uh, the weekend after C2E2. So if there was any lingering con crud, hopefully that's passed. I, I came through it germ-free. I don't know about you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get sick, but I tell you, the older I get, the worse my jet lag gets. I mean, this is a show that's only two time zones away, and yet like I'm, like, I'm sleeping for three days. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I built... I'm just I had it, well, yeah, well, as someone older, I just build in that extra day off, too, to kind of snap back to work. But, yeah, it was a rough week uh, work-wise and everything. So, uh, But, uh, you know, how was, uh, how was the convention for you? I know you were just kind of 
politicking. I'm not really sure what you were doing. <laughs> yes. You weren't set up, but I know you were, you did a couple panels. Yeah, I didn't I didn't set up at at C two E two. I never have actually. I was doing uh, I was doing the mainly panels. I had uh, four of my own with the comics experience uh, panels breaking into comics. Um, uh, a comic book art uh, storytelling panel with Riley Brown, which was awesome. Um, uh, and then I had a, uh, a writing for video games. I've been doing a lot of video game work the last several years. Um, so I had done my first ever writing for video game panel, which was a lot of fun and, and really cool. And people seemed to really respond to that. Um, and then I was on the, uh, the panel called Mary Do or Kill, which is sort of about women and women in comics and, or women, you know, how women are portrayed in comics and pop culture. And that, um, I've been on similar panels for that. And, um, those that is the scariest panel in the world to be on because you're like dancing on eggshells and here I am like the you know I got you know middle aged white dude on the panel <laughs> you know like like anything I feel like anything I say is going to be taken in the worst possible way <laughs> you know at any well, point I, or could be at least you know and so given given the current environment I I I can appreciate that and uh you know the week before in Calgary there was the big flap with yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, their women in comics panel and and you know any any did you see any kind of uh I, protest or backlash i didn't no i didn't and, and in fact enrique um of red stylo media who who it was really her her panel their panel that they that they put on that she invited me onto. i mean she had actually flagged it she, she'd emailed us um several days maybe a week or two even before I, mean, I guess Calgary was only the week before, but um, had emailed us like immediately and said, this is what went on and said, you know, kind of asked us like, do we, A, do we still want to be on the panel or were we, you know, whatever. And we were all like, yeah, of course we'll be on the panel because, and, and we decided we weren't really going to change anything. Uh, I hope I'm not telling anything out of school by saying this, but, you know, basically our, our take on it was if you're going to stand up and protest at this panel and you're, you're really just going to make yourself look like an ass. Like you're not gonna make us yeah. an ass, you know. You know so like, yeah. Okay. I, I think that's that's the thing was it's not so much that they disagreed, but to derail a panel, I think is kind of counterproductive. Instead of what what maybe could happen uh, moving forward is really let's see an honest debate. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's it's interesting too, and this has been the case at at shows for a while. Is the you know cosplay is not consent? You see those signs with all the yes, with all the rules, yes. and those always make me sad. You know, because uh, it's sad that the sign needs to be posted. But you know what? I'd rather them post the sign, and at least be recognizing that there have been issues, and that there, I'm sure, continue to be issues. I haven't heard about any instances in the last show or two, but. Um, but uh, you know, it means we're talking about it. It means it's out there, and it means that the the tide is shifting where it's not it's not the boys' locker room that it used to be, or or if it is still, then then we're we as a collective industry and as professional people are making a real effort to clean it up. You know, like you know, it's time. I, I don't know. Maybe it's like Times Square in the seventies. It's like it's time to clean this up. Like this. This is not cool. It was never cool, and just because you used to think it was cool doesn't mean it's cool now. And uh, Agreed. So, yeah, I think we're headed in the right direction. I think a healthy debate. Um, you know, and I, like I said, I'd been on that panel once or twice before and um, had never had any issues. Nothing I had said had ever been taken out of context. or and, and, But one thing that I had said was taken, uh, was taken uh, in a way it was not intended 
and um, and you know got somebody upset at the panel, and uh, you know I felt terrible. Like I like it's like it's like this is the opposite of what I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to do here. <laughs> uh, but at least, but I you know I was really grateful that that uh, that that person did stand up and and you know you know give voice to the way she was feeling and and gave me a chance to sort of respond and clarify you know the intent of what i was saying but you know but i mean i think that's one of those things too that's really hard about this issue is it's so easy to say something and have it come across just the wrong the wrong way and it's like the way you interpret it is that that's not me that's not that's not what i'm about and that doesn't mean that i don't have room to grow we all do you know and there's I've got well, plenty, yes. i got plenty to learn and 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 so i wound up learning something that that the way that i the way it was really kind of like the way that i said that um it's not the best way to do it i guess so it it was it was good you know and if i can come out of a panel where i have learned something and a lot of the, you know several of the other panelists um on there you know said things that were just like man you you said that way better than i than i could and and thank you for that you know it was great it was great so anyway i had a really good show at c2e2 uh saw a lot of old (laughs) friends and all that kind of good stuff and uh my my niece and nephew that live in chicago both have birthdays a week apart today is actually my nephew's birthday today but uh they kind of you know had a party so i was able to be there for that too so that's always an added bonus so it makes makes c2e2 c2e2 is always right around their birthday so it's always a great time to see family too so yeah that's cool. Well, and how about on the creative side of some of the panels that you did? Uh, you know, what kind of questions are you getting? Are they is are the questions changing at all in terms of the breaking into comics panels? And are they getting? Uh, you know, have uh, I imagine there still are people that need that introductory kind of question and answer period? But are there? You know. Have we moved on to the next square in terms of people asking better questions? Of well, yeah, I understand that. I'll start doing my comic online, but now, <laughs> you know, I'm encountering these problems, or I want to try and get to this level. What do I need? Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that, that type of panel, especially you know, the, when I do the breaking into comics and staying in in panel, which is one of the ones I'm sort of better known for. Um, that panel always is, you know, standing room only, or they they even stop letting people in. Um, and it, and it wasn't that way when I started doing this several years back, um, but it is it is now. So I think there's more interest in it. Um, the conversation has changed. I mean, usually people come into that. I mean, you know, some people will go to that panel maybe you know a couple of years in a row and sort of see how things are going and kind of re-listen work on what they're doing come back and kind of get something different out of it but i revise it every time i do it not even every year but every show i wind up revising it sometimes not you know complete overhauls obviously but sure i revise it because the landscape in the comics industry changes so quickly um, and you know, when I started talking about breaking into comics, that really meant to most people writing and doing art for Marvel or DC. Right. And it is not that now, like at all. Um, which isn't to say people don't want to write and draw for Marvel and DC, but that is usually not the end game that people are, exactly. are asking about anymore. They they want to know how do I make my comics? How do I create yep. my characters? How do I print my own comics? How do I get them in front of people that might be able to hire me or might want to publish it? Um, you know, so I talk a lot about now about you know the importance of networking and. If, importance of being professional and, and what does that actually mean you know there's a lot of like well you need to be professional and then people just move on to the next topic like like that's not like an intuitively obvious 
sure. thing. Well, you know? and it can mean different, and it does mean a bunch of different things. Right. And, you know, you can be professional in one th- and certain things, thinking you've got it covered, but not thinking about the other end of the spectrum. Right, yeah. And, and you know, one of the you know, one of the big the biggest hurdles I see on those panels is, you know, I'll ask people, you know, how many of you want to write comics, right? You know, half the room raises their hand or you know, 80% raise their hand. How many of you write every day? And like, <laughs> like 80% of the 80% hands go down. It's like, all right, uh-huh. well, why don't you start writing? Like, like why, why don't we start there? Start doing the thing that you want to do. Andy, your, uh, your vibe's kind of going up and down. And so I don't know if you're like moving back and forth and are you using a headset? I'm using a headset. Yeah. Okay, I like. Yeah, I don't know if you can like reposition the mic to make sure that it's in yeah, a certain place. Is it good now? It, it seems to be. Go okay. ahead. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of. So they're not writing. Yeah, they're not writing every day. Yeah, they're not writing every day, and the, the, a lot of the artists aren't drawing every day. And and if you're if you're wanting to break into the comics industry, if you're wanting to break into any industry, you need to be you know working on it and that kind of thing. So it's it's interesting. Those sorts of things haven't changed that much because those are sort of innate human traits there, there comes a point for people where it clicks and they go okay yeah this is what I'm going to do um, and this is what I have to do and then they start doing it um, and there's no amount of you know me pushing somebody you know out on a panel that's going to make them go yep I'm going to do that right now now somebody might happen to have that epiphany that day um, but that's you know I'm there to provide the information and give them some some ideas of where to go next so that they can get on on the road and that's you know largely what comics experience is about is when you're ready we're here for you you know we're here to to help you hone the craft we're here to talk to you about networking about being professional this is what this is what we're here to do for for comic creators but it doesn't do do somebody any good to join a class or join the creators workshop or whatever if they're not at that point, if they're not ready, you know, you got to be ready to make that commitment and that sort of thing. So, um, but the things that have changed are, you know, definitely people are way more interested in doing creator owned comics or way more interested in self publishing. Um, people are more savvy about wanting to hold on to certain kinds of rights. Um, the, the, oh yeah. The other panel I had forgot to mention was we did the, uh, the comic book law for comic book creators panel, which, um, an attorney friend of mine, Joe Sergi, does uh, with me, and he's he's amazing. And he goes through like you know you want to have the reversion clause in your contract so that you know if they aren't putting out the book, you get the rights back after X amount of time. You need to agree on that. You need you know. And he goes through all this, you know, just a wealth of information on that kind of thing. And people are really really interested in that now. They they don't want to just sign anything. And that sure it used to be that you just signed it. You just you didn't even read it. You just signed it. And you were like, well, all right, <laughs> I guess it's check with yeah. them, you know. And uh and, and folks are not that inclined to do that anymore. Understood. Well, God again, I mean, uh, not to pick on DC and Marvel, but uh they don't, you know, help themselves when we hear about Jerry Conway, uh and a, a very established writer, not just in comics, but also in television yeah. that uh, you know, yeah, you know, the character he created that's being used on the Flash T V series. And he clearly is getting the runaround on this character and not getting, you know, compensated at all for it and for, for contradicting uh, reasons. You can argue either way that it's either a derivative character of Firestorm or that it is an original character. And in each way, there's a reason to say no. And it's, it really seems like there's a lot of red tape. So, no, you're, you know, I, I know that there was that feeling, certainly in his era, that that was the pinnacle working for a DC or Marvel. And I've even started asking that question of, uh, veterans 
that what they think of how now it's changed. And I always say I don't have the right word for what DC and Marvel represent in their career, but it's not quite college because they need to even be better than you know a high a high school equivalent of making comics to get to work for DC and Marvel. And also the work they do there is not just you know, comparable to like, if you put it in sports terms, like college, and then you move on to the majors and stuff, that's not what happens. Yeah. It's making your market the big two and then taking that audience you've made at the big two with you uh, and will continue to be interested in your work, no matter what the character is and into your ideas, you know, and Scott Snyder, I think is the, the latest guy to discover um, that when he, you know, his, his book, Witches, is only five issues old right now, his creator own book. Mm-hmm. And granted, he's been doing it with American Vampire as well. But I think, you know, certainly more more people have been reading his Batman stuff. And I, I'm interested to know, like, the next time I talk to him, if, you know, he has even anecdotal evidence of, you know, I really only read your Batman and this is great. I'm enjoying Witches or whatever. I know American Vampire has its own audience and it is still a very small audience, but but very, you know. Typically, Vertigo dedicated and locked in and stuff for the ride. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, a lot of creators have done that. They've they've made a name for themselves at Marvel or DC, and then carried you know a portion of that audience over. And but it's interesting because a lot of a lot of guys now you know start in indie comics. They build an audience, and then it's because they've been able to build that audience. They've got something to say that that Marvel and DC are interested in them. Then that, yes, and then that, Justin, and then that'll, Justin Jordan right. was like that. I know. Yeah, and that allows them to pick up you know a wider audience because now they're on these bigger name characters. Yes, and then they can go back and go back to doing what they were doing, or you know more often they do some of the you know the bigger superhero type stuff, and they do some of their creator own, and the two kind of feed into each other, and it and creates this nice you know um, you know hopefully healthy balance for them in terms of being creatively fulfilled being financially fulfilled and being able to you know because here's the thing I mean with the, with the writing work that I'm doing now the bulk of the writing that I do now is for characters that I don't own which is fine I know that deal going in but here's the right. thing I love I, like I've loved this stuff since I was a kid you know, whether it's working on something Star Wars Marvel DC whatever it is I've loved this stuff since I was a kid to get a paycheck that allows me to um, to you know feed my kids and, and take care of my my family for 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 writing characters that I grew up like like oh, like yeah. daydreaming about writing these characters is like kind of the most amazing thing ever and so sure. uh, and so I have I have no problem with working this way for me but that's my decision for me you know and and other people ha- feel very differently about that but you know i i love it and i'd love doing my creator own stuff too um but they're very very they're very different they flex very different muscles and for me i just think creatively i get better when i'm doing work that's that all comes from me you know the creator own stuff and i'm doing work where uh there are different challenges you know because i have to you know find Rocket Raccoon's voice, or I have to find Han Solo's voice, or you know, all those sorts of challenges that come up when you're working on a property that you don't ultimately control. Um, and I think that just makes people stronger as as creators, usually. Yeah, well, and and it presents its own challenges in a good way when there are parameters and you have to decide. Okay, I can't do that, so I have to come up with a more creative choice of what to do. So sometimes that'll make you stretch to you know stick to the rules 
and you know that's its own opportunity as well. But certainly, then yeah, making your own stuff, it's great to have that liberty to do your own thing. And I also appreciate those people that come to DC and Marvel, find that there are too many rules, and go, yeah, you know something, I really am happier doing my own thing. Thanks, right. sorry, yeah, you know, and that's okay. And that it's it's an interesting market now. The question is, can they make enough? And is it how you know it, it really is this slow process of building an audience for your creator-owned stuff? If you don't have that DC or Marvel exposure to bring with you, like you know, can this be your only job creating comics? And can you really focus on it, or you know, do you still have to work at Starbucks or at Barnes and Noble? Yeah, it's um, well, uh, yeah, and and I'm actually dealing with that on sort of multiple fronts every day sure. because of you know with comic experience with the with the people coming in and the people growing their skills and all that i mean that that's this is what they're struggling with and so you know i'm i'm interacting with people trying to break into comics people succeeding in breaking into comics um all the time every like every day i'm interacting with with people and and they're telling me you know they're like hey have you ever run into a situation like this and we're all very you know we're all very professional and very polite about the way we, you know, discuss these things. But, but we're honest. You know, have you ever run into a situation like, oh, okay, you know? And I try and help people, you know, especially people that have been doing, you know, indie books, create your own books. When they first start getting, you know, we'll call them, you know, licensed, you know, sure, books, licensed yeah. project. Yeah. Um, when they start getting those and they, they they're interacting with an editor for the for the maybe for the first time, sure. much less an editor who has you know, approval authority, right? They, they're the ultimate authority because they're, you know, the working for, you know, right. they, rep the company. they rep the company and the company owns the characters. And it's really, really difficult to go from, these are my characters. I can do whatever the heck I want to, these are not my characters. And not only can I not do whatever the heck I want, I can't even exactly tell the story that I thought I was approved to tell, which happens very often. And, 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 and and then you're getting notes for the first time, and how do you deal with the notes? And you know, a lot of a lot of people, you know, whether it's just writer or artist, you know, the knee jerk reaction is to sort of be argumentative. And I think that's sure. why in the '70s and the '80s, you know, you, you heard about all this. Uh, is a, a, obviously a gross generalization, generalization, but I think that's why you heard in the '70s and '80s about you know so much editorial interference, is because. They hadn't really figured out creators and editors hadn't really figured out the proper dynamic. And to my mind, as a as an editor, you know, whether I was working for Marvel or IDW or whether I'm doing comics experience now, my goal isn't to force you to tell the story I want you to tell. My goal is to try and get the best version of your story out of you, uh, and to help you do that. So when you know, after I was an editor for a number of years and I was working with newer writers and they'd come back and argue, I'd say, all right, let's, let's hop on the phone usually as opposed to email and let's talk this through. And I would try to, I would try to get them to see that I'm actually on, I'm trying to help them. You know, it's not like I'm going to put a hammer on you because I can, it's here's what's happening. Here's on, on my end, you know, and sometimes you can't even say this is exactly why we can't do that story point. Cause you, you, you're you're breaking an obligation to the company, but you can say there are reasons I can't get into, right? That we can't follow that particular thread or Story yeah or, or, okay. or you know point or we can't use that sure. we can't use this character that I didn't know we couldn't use when I initially sure. had, you know these things shift and and then you start saying so let's figure it out you know and you, and you try and get 
you try and, you know, as an editor, I try to get the writer on board and we try and work through those things together, sure. you know, bouncing ideas off one another. Um, and so a lot of times when I'm dealing with creators that are getting into this for the first time, they're like, editor, I, don't, I don't even know why he's saying that. And I just want to go back and go, okay, well, here's what you do. Instead of arguing, go back and say, here's what I'm trying to do in the scene. You know, this is what I, I'm hoping that you're taking away from the scene. Is that what you're getting? Is that what you think I'm doing? And if the answer is no, that's not what they got out of the scene. Well, there's a problem right there. And now you know what you need to go in and fix is how do you fix that scene? So the editor, when they read it is, you know, is getting out of the scene, what you think they're supposed to get out of the scene. So there are a lot of different, you know, we get into all kinds of stuff. I don't even know how we got here, John. I don't, what are we talking about? But well, anyway, no, that's, my, that's my point is, is, no, you know, it, is part of that career is, is learning those things. And there's, there's so many things that, that people, um, you know, learn on the job and, and they fall down. And one of the things that, you know, I tell folks is okay is it's okay to make a mistake, but if you make a mistake, own up to it, you know, because <laughs> that's the best thing. Right. Well, not every word is not every word is precious and understand that the editor, the, the good editors, as you just said, are there to help you tell your story and either, you know, when it is a licensed comic to do it within those parameters and understand that, yeah, they can change. But when it is your story, too, that, uh, you know, yeah, that you're just trying to help them bring bring the best of them out and that they they shouldn't work in a vacuum. And I always ask a lot of the image people, who do you have to be a de facto editor? Who's looking over your stuff? And, you know, I know that in the case of a lot of the older guys and stuff, they have guys they trust, even younger guys, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, Henri Compin was on uh, one of my C2E2 floor uh, discussions, and David Anthony Kraft, a great old uh, Marvel editor and the guy behind Comics Interview, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, edits, edits his book and everything, and that's terrific. And it's smart that he's got a guy that, you know, has experience and understands how to break story and everything and having him look over his stuff. That's smart. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there is a natural editorial process that, that really goes with 99% of the writers, even the artists too. I mean, the artists are constantly sure. showing each other, um, you know, their work and, and, and pushing each other to, to be better and to, Hey, look at this, oh, yeah. you know, it happens. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you see no editor listed, but as somebody who's worked in the industry for over a decade, you're looking at it and you're going, yeah, I mean, I know people were involved, you know, I know that with my own work, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've been sort of workshopping this script that I've been, you know, this idea I've been tinkering with for about a year or so. And, and every time I send it off to somebody to take a look at and, you know, give me some feedback on it, you know, I, I update the, 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 the special thank you page and just add their name to it. Now that name, the names are up to like 15 people now, you know, <laughs> you know? and it's like, Good. and it's like, that's, but that's what you do, you know. I mean, that's that's how sure. you learn. That's and that's how you 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 head your bets that you're not putting out, you know, uh, drivel. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God! I ran into a, an old radio buddy of mine who I didn't know was into um, more, and and I don't even know the right uh, way to describe the genre. More literary comics, you know, the Harvey P. Cars and the Dean Haspiel, and uh, you know, the 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 the, the alt comics rather than. The Wednesday Warriors that are coming for superhero or action right, adventure yeah. or the traditional or not even traditional, but you know the others other stories genre fiction stories mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, he he's an old radio guy, and he's like, oh, you know, I heard your podcast, and I'm like, all right, you're in radio. I'm like, I get a lot of feedback from comic book people. I get a lot of feedback from listeners. It is rare that I get a radio 
brother or sister to actually listen to my podcast and I'm like, give it to me. <laughs> you right. know, I'm like, I'm like, I don't, I'm not looking for pets on the back. I am looking for honest radio criticism, you know, cause he knows, he knows alt comics, but he doesn't know some of the, you know, DC and Marvel stuff. So I ask, am I too inside baseball with this stuff is, you know, do you have to be a Wednesday warrior to understand the conversation? And he said, no, I really didn't feel that way. And he, he gave me, but he gave me some honest, constructive criticism. And I was so relieved. Because, yeah, I'm like, I, I need that. And so I'm sure you guys need that as well. And you can go to your peers who will be honest with you and won't be your mom and just tell you, yeah, you're wonderful, dear. Yeah. You know, right. it's like, OK. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 necessary. It's yes, it's and it's and it's much more pleasant to learn that you made a terrible mistake before you, you know, put something off to print than, than rather after it's out in the world. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you're trying to craft a story that everyone will like, which we all know is, isn't possible. But um, you want to you want to craft stories that you can be proud of, that you can look in the eye. Even the projects, you know, as uh, even the projects that that don't turn out the way I intended or, or in some way may even have disappointed me. Um, you know, and I can think of projects both as an editor and as a writer that have, that have happened that way. I try to make sure I can always look the project in the eye. You know, if the mistakes were made, I own up to them if they're mine. You know, obviously, um, and uh, and 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 figure out what I learned so that the next project sure. that doesn't happen on. And and I think that's what most professionals do that that really that really care. Absolutely. No, I would agree. So. Um, I, I kind of want to. I, I want to ask you about your books in particular, but I, and I guess hand in hand with that, you can talk also from the creators that go through comic experience and stuff. Um, do you? Is it is it getting wider? I mean, it is hard to get attention when there are so many good books out there, and that is a great problem to have as a consumer, but it also as a retailer, and the retailer is really the guy that determines what books the public sees. So, you know, where where are we in terms of, you know, that and getting your book out there when there is such competition from all at all sides to get attention? Well, that's uh there's a multifaceted answer to that and I don't mind talking about it. So, um, you know, as I said, you're working with creators who are who are breaking in or who have started to break in or who have broken in but are still develop, you know, everybody's still developing. Scott Snyder is still developing. Sure. You know. So, um, and there's a wide range of people that I'm working with through Comics Experience, especially in the Creators Workshop, which is the you know the, the online 24/7 you know uh, aspect of Comics Experience. That that you know we've got working pros in there. We've got you know people who have only read a comic once or twice before and are what's this all about? Um, you know we've got the whole gamut, which is which is great. It actually makes for really awesome discussions. Um, and uh, and so what. What you find is that you, 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 people come in and, they, and, and, and there is this initial instinct that we all have the same goal, right? And this is something that when I started doing comics experience back in 2007, I realized pretty quickly uh, because I, that was my instinct as well. People are going to come take the class from the former you know, Marvel editor guy and they're all going to want to do this. And I quickly realized that's wrong. Right, that 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 people have different goals, and often widely different goals. Sometimes nuanced, but the difference in the individual goals really determines 
uh, how you're going to, to, to define success on a project or on a, you know, something you're working on. And so if your goal is to ultimately you want to write, uh, you know, Spider-Man or whatever, then you're going to do different projects to create a different roadmap to get you there, hopefully in a more expedited, you know, manner. And you're going to have to learn different kinds of, you know, you're going to have to really work on tools that are geared towards working on licensed comics, you know, working well in a larger team, um, working within a continuity. You know, there are all these, you know, these sorts of things that go with that. Whereas somebody else that wants to, you know, that, that you know, I, I like to point at like, you know, Eric Larson, you know, this guy had been working on Savage Dragon since he was about five years old. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make Savage Dragon. He doesn't want to make creator-owned comic after creator-owned comic after creator-owned comic. He wants to he wants to do Savage Dragon for the rest of his life. That's what it looks like to me, anyway. And um, and you know that's a very different you know set of skills that you need that you need to develop. You're, you need to develop a world uh, character with with enough different facets to it that you can take it and malleable enough that you can take it in all these different directions. And so you know what what I'm seeing is that with more genre opening up. Uh, with with popularity, what I'm seeing are those opportunities. Those people that have more diversified goals are getting more excited, which is great. Um, but in terms of <laughs> so, comics experience just started. I think I think you knew your last time I was on here. You were like, so when are you going to start publishing? And I'm like, uh, right. uh, <laughs> not ready to talk about that yet. Uh, so we we had our first book, Creature Cops, came out in January. Um, mm-hmm. It was a three issue miniseries, and then our our second comic just launched um last last week two weeks ago you're you're away from the mic again andy i can't hear you oh sorry um so the first book is this better are we back on track um all right just when you said are we back on track that's a little bit better did you move it a little more did you adjust it or whatever yeah but that should be that's a, as close to my mouth okay, as that, i want to get that, well now it sounds okay. okay okay so uh so the first book was creature cops in january the second book launched in April drones and uh, what what we're seeing in terms of feedback from retailers and and mm-hmm. and fans fortunately reviews have been have been quite positive for for both but um, which is good in terms of building an overall sort of um, you know you want to be equated with quality work and you know that kind of thing but what what we're seeing is is that retailers are smart which doesn't really surprise me um, they're they are looking at that catalog, but they're looking. You know, we're getting orders, um, but we're getting orders. And when I look at the differences between issues one and two, and two and three, and you know, these these things make sense. I see how retailers are are getting there. Why the orders go down X percent and that kind of thing. Right. Um, and then the orders from you know the number one of Creature Cops to number two on or to number one of Drones. You know, I'm seeing why there are differences there. The books are very different from one another, and you know, retailers are looking for things that grab attention. And, you know, the interesting thing about what I'm doing as comics experience, we're only publishing things that, that grow out of, out of the comics experience workshop. So mm-hmm. to my mind, I know that these creators are, you know, they care about craft. I know that they're well-tested. I know that they've had input from, from people that know story. You know, uh, I've, I've seen that and I've seen them grow as creators. And so I know the work is there. Right. But right. the problem is <laughs> that uh, that 
there aren't that many of us that know the work is there. So, and some of them have had other works published already. Paul Aller has had, has had, sure. uh, you know, several things published, um, but not everybody has. And uh, well, and, and real fast, just like describe both books. Describe so, creature, uh, right? Uh, creature, drones. creature cops is is uh, it's basically it's a police procedural um, in in a world in which genetic designers kind of went haywire. And so, um, going back a couple decades now, they started splicing animals, gene splicing animals together. So you get, you know, gator snakes, uh, you know, mastiff, you know, mastiff dogs with, you know, rhinoceros horns and things like that. Um, and so basically this is a, this is a story that takes place in that world about the animal control cops who are nicknamed creature cops, um, and so, you know, it's like are they are they sentient? Are they are uh, you know? No, yeah, they're, they're still or... they're still animals. But but you have it. Basically, it's a, it's a it's a unique way to sort of tell stories about you know the animal fighting rings and stuff like that. So you've got these different officers. You know, there's a hoarder, and they, they've got you know these these hybrid you know rat creatures and things that are you know very difficult to deal with. And so it's a very thankless job, but it follows sort of the lives of these characters as they you know come across these. You know these these mutant sort of you know mutated whatever you know hybrids yeah, yeah. Um, but it but it's but it's a uh, it's written by Rob Anderson who wrote it is is a huge you know animal rights you know proponent and and uh, and so there's 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 a love of animals there and there is a love of you know of people too I mean it's not like a it's not like it's hammering a political agenda over but um, but yeah that's that's what it is and it's it's a good book it's well told and it's it's fun um and then drones is is probably the hardest to explain of all the things that we've got lined up uh but it is a satire which in and of itself sort of scares me because satire amongst genre is the most misunderstood of all of them um and not only is it a satire it is a satire that involves terrorism uh, which frightens me even more in today's climate. But um, but it's really this it's this bizarre um, uh, ex- exploration, really, of the connection between um, war, terrorism, and, and entertainment, uh, and sex. And so it's uh, it's very bizarre. Um, it's I think very smart. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting to see cause the, the first issue's only been out a couple of weeks and a couple of the reviews thought like they got it and they really thought it was, it was a strong, you know, really strong issue. And then there were, uh, there were two reviews that were not so, not so kind, but then when you read the reviews, you realize they didn't really understand what the book was actually about. Um, sure. Uh, so actually even reading the negative reviews kind of made me feel good. Not that, not good that they didn't get it, but good that it wasn't a negative review of somebody that was like absolutely understood it and still thought it sucked. You know, <laughs> you know, it was, sure. you know, there were reviews where it's like, well, this wasn't the book that I wanted it to be sort of thing. Yes. But, and I, know. yeah. And I, and those kind of reviewers really, uh, irk me and yeah, it's, I wish that there were uh, gatekeepers that could immediately tell them that's, <laughs> That's not a review. That is a wish fulfillment that went unfulfilled, and I'm sorry that didn't happen for right. you, but that's not your job. That's not what the job is supposed to be. You're supposed to talk about – well, or that or Bendis just got all this flack for Bobby Drake right. uh, suddenly, suddenly Iceman. Suddenly become, being gay, right. Yeah. Suddenly gay, right. which is my you know my favorite NBC uh, canceled <laughs> sitcom about three years ago. Um, 
And, you know, everyone is, you know, a lot of fans are what the hell and immediately continuity wonks are this can't be. And Brian is this is chapter one. You know, it's like this just was introduced. Uh, it's leading somewhere. Let me get there. And then by all means, talk to me. And I and I, you know, I think you might have said it in a nicer way than that. But I, I've heard, you know, other creators face the same problem. And that is what concerns me about the level of some comic criticism that's out there that they yeah, it's this. This story should have gone this way, like it always does. And sometimes it's like, well, yeah, but it is a six-part story, and this is part two, right? And you know, and usually it's yeah. part two where things do kind of happen in act in that first act where, hey, things are upside down, and the rest of the story is to write things, you know, make things right side up again. Right. So kind of let them tell their story. Man. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I think we see a little bit more of that in comics because of the nature of, you know, it told periodically in chapters, right? So you're getting you're getting sure. reviews of half of a story. Yeah. Yes. Um, half is generous, like I said, right. one-sixth story right. in some cases. So, uh, so, yeah, I definitely agree with that, but it's not like that doesn't happen. I mean, how many movie reviews do I read where it's like, this movie should have been this? I'm like, well, then, you know, you got to take that movie you know, on its own terms, like actually before yeah. I think you were recording, we were talking about some of the, you know, comic book movies from the last you know six, right. six years or so. And, and I was sort of dogging one of them a little bit and you were like, yeah, you know, people don't like that. I'm like, well, no, actually as a movie, like divorced from the source material, I don't take much of an issue with it, but as an adaptation, you know, when you connect the two, you know, so, so it, sure. it is, it's just interesting to see the different ways you look at it, but it, it you know what's really fascinating for me. You know, I've been—I was an editor for a number of years. Uh, I've been a writer. Um, I hadn't really looked at things like a pub, as a as a publisher before, and so this has been this has been really really fascinating for me to see to really look at things like. Hey, wait a second, I'm I, you know myself now. I now I have a committee at Comics Experience. It's not just me because I, I don't I don't trust myself that much. Like I need I want to hear other voices. You know, if I miss something that's good, I want somebody to say, "Hey, take another look at this." Or if I think something's good that you know maybe I missed a flaw in it, and we need to look at it again. You know, so there's a committee involved in the in the process of approving projects. But um, but man, I mean, it's just you know I'm looking at things that. That it's not that I had never looked at them before. You know, I've always, you know, especially as an editor, I'm looking for, you know, can I sell this story? Can I do this? Um, you know, is there something big enough that happens in it? But it really is different when it's, you know, you're putting up your money, you're putting up, you know, your time, your reputation is on this, and, um, you know, and and you know, what is this? You know, what does this book say about comics experience? What does that project say about comics experience? You know, you're looking at it on this whole different level as a publisher and and um it's it's fascinating and you know it's 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 great for me because i'm a huge proponent that you know creative people should always be learning and lord knows since we started this publishing initiative i am learning <laughs> an awful lot um but so far it's been really i mean it's been really really positive um you know we haven't hit any you know major roadblocks or had any you know the bottom drop out on anything with us and and as i said you know the the reaction to the to the books you know they're not sell, you know they're not breaking the 100k mark in in units sold or anything but they're but they're they're garnering respect they're garnering good reviews and my hope is that you know given that they're coming out uh they're sort of being co-published you know by comics experience and IDW you know my hope is that those reviews and 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 the, the quality of those projects will actually help those creators, you know, get 
get the the type of work they want, whether it's more creator owned type stuff or it'll, you know, you know, Marvel or DC or, you know, image, you'll see the books and go, you know, we should give these guys a chance. Um, you know, so we're starting to see that kind of thing happen as well, which is really nice. That's for, for me, that's the point. You know, the point of what I'm doing is a little different than most publishers that are like, they're, they're in it to make a profitable business. And it's not like I want to lose money, but you know, there's, you know, this is an aspect of, you know, trying to inject some new creators, some new, you know, maybe even, you know, new, new kinds of stories into the marketplace and, and get more stories well told by people that know what they're doing and, uh, and get those out in the marketplace. And I think that's only going to make, the comics industry as a whole, you know, better. Sure, better. But is is the experiment paying for itself? And you know, I mean, are you are you not or are you losing money on the prospect? Uh, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I'm not losing money. But you know, I'm not going to get rich off the publishing any anytime. No, soon. but like, <laughs> but, again, but I'm just saying that like. You know, uh, a, the writer is like the book is. You know, the book is paying for itself, and yeah, I mean, obviously, you're doing it like you just said to get more good creators out there, and also prove that going through comics experience. I mean, it only helps legitimize the school and everything, and what right. you're trying to do. So, so yeah, there is that benefit to it. But in terms of are the numbers good enough? Because that's, I mean, the reality is it doesn't have to be a hundred thousand because that's the the, the the make money make or break number is different right. for you know for, first of all for an image book and now and but in partnership with IDW I imagine that number is different as well right. as opposed yeah, to so- Marvel and DC it's it's you know yeah they want to average and I'm just going to throw a number out there thirty five thousand you know sold copies or whatever that stores are buying at least thirty five thousand copies and that and then a book is making enough money for it to continue. You know, for for whatever length is is necessary, and it is meeting whatever line of demarcation there is for you and IDW is what I'm asking. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is you know the conversations that you know the contract you know that I have with IDW. Not that I can really get into it. You know, it it it, sure. it, it explains how money gets split and divided, and then I have sort of you know my own separate contract with creators. So money that comes into me. How much you know flows through me just directly onto them, that kind of thing, um, and uh, and I don't know what their threshold is in terms of like, well, we want to make X dollars off of an issue. I just know that they get X percent. You know what I mean? So right. So I can't really speak to IDW. I can say that for Comics Experience, it's fine. It's going great. Okay. Um, and and I don't and I don't take much, you know. I I try to basically recoup my I try to recoup my costs right. and then get a little bit something because there's a lot of time and effort that goes into it, sure. um, you know. But uh, but then you know as much as I can, I pass you know right back on to the creators. And the other the other thing that was it was interesting because I talked to a lot of people who who you know before actually designing the thing you know within the workshop and even without you know working creators and friends and whatnot about what are the things that are most important and. And uh, you know, it was it was almost universal. The thing that was most important was holding on to their rights. And so, uh, the thing that I am actually most proud of with what we're doing with these creators is that the creators are holding on to a hundred percent of their rights. The exception being the publishing rights because it's a publishing right. deal. But sure. their entertainment rights, their merchandising rights, you know, 
a hundred percent creator owned. Like, you know, when I, when we're saying they're creator owned comics, they're absolutely creator owned comics, comics. If they go make a movie, comics experience isn't getting a piece of that. IDW's not getting a piece of that. Um, and that's one of the things I'm like most proud about, you know, somebody that goes around and, and talks about creator rights and treating creators properly and all that sort of stuff. Like what kind of a you know, hypocrite would I have been if I hadn't, <laughs> sure. if I hadn't been able to do that. And fortunately I was able to find a publishing partner in IDW uh, that, that saw that as well. Um, and so they, you know, I mean, I, I got to give IDW a lot of credit for, 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 yeah, for agreeing to that and, and, and not just agreeing to it, but agreeing to it kind of wholeheartedly. Uh, is, I can't remember now if I, I think IDW is involved with uh, Scribd, the uh, kind of new Netflix uh, sort of uh, right. yeah, yeah. Lending, lending library online. Um, are your books going to be there? I don't think they are yet, um, but I haven't actually. You know what? I'm going to make a note. I'll check on that. But I, but no, I think they are doing. I think they are starting off with like their major license projects, like yeah, uh-huh. your, okay. your GI Joe, your Transformers, your Orphan Blacks. I think those are the things that are going up there. Those are a lot cleaner to do than something again that's like creator owned and that sort of thing. So I think I think likely that's where they're starting with it. And if those go well, then they'll find a way to make the others. Yeah, I just wonder, and well, and I wonder too, you know, um, with image creators as well, because it's that question of do I want people to be exposed to my work, even if like the first arc is put up somewhere for free after, you know, uh, a period when it's on this, on right. just you know, purely for sale, both digitally and physically. But then, yeah, you know, I mean, is it worth it to have it up there free? So that you know, just to get exposure and hopefully have it have it trickle down. I mean, I didn't understand uh, Matt Matt Hawkins really when he came on uh, from Top Cow and really kind of broke down. I don't I didn't understand why creators don't just put out one trade and then you know, hey, if it didn't work, we'll move on to the next concept. Don't you know? Don't push the story longer than it needs to be to the point where you're losing money. And he said that obviously uh, there are several series over at Top Cow that. Uh, uh, once he put out, you know, when he was putting out the second trades, sales for the first trade obviously picked up. But, you know, retailers like the idea that there are more than one volume, obviously, and they are willing to order more books. And therefore, then the consumer knows that they're getting more than just a six issue story. And they might even be more interested knowing that there is more than yeah. just, just one story to tell. I take that even a step further and say that that applies to individual issues as well. You know, I think I think retailers are more interested in you know a twelve issue series than they are in a six issue than they are in a four or a three or a one shot. The one shot they only sell once; they get their three ninety nine right. off of it. And but if you can sell it, if you sell in a twelve issue miniseries, that's three ninety nine times twelve that you just sold theoretically. So I think there's you know, and that's and that's something that you know is sort of you know bearing out in some of the things that I'm learning as a publisher and when I talk to retailers about you know, how do you order books and you know, I mean, there. I did a ton of research before going into into you know getting the publishing program up and running. And now that it's up and running, I'm going back over that research and I'm getting slightly different takeaways. <laughs> like like the takeaways, you know, from some of the answers I got and from some of the questions that were raised. Um, you know, now that I'm actually publishing and I'm seeing how things are actually going through and transpiring and feedback we're getting that yeah. kind of thing, I'm seeing that. Maybe I I got the takeaway just just five percent wrong or 
fifteen percent wrong or something like that, you know. And so, so it's so it's interesting. I would say that's one of them that I thought, you know, a shorter miniseries, you know, they're not going to get burned as bad. So maybe they'll order more of that. And what I'm seeing is, is that's while that's true and it's a factor, it is also true that on a longer miniseries, um, you know, then then they've got the opportunity to sell more. That said, you know, it's so ingrained in me as a writer and as an editor that. You know, it's not like I'm going to go to somebody that comes to me with a three issue miniseries. I'm going to say, okay, stretch it out to five. <laughs> like, like that's not going to happen because ultimately that leads to a to a to a bad product. You know, bad a bad story. Right. You know, which does no one any good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating. And and I will say, I wasn't sure what kind of interest I was going to get. Uh, you know, within the community, the comics experience, you know, workshop community. Um, I held those cards pretty, pretty close to my chest while putting the whole thing together internally. And, um, and, uh, it's been, it's been phenomenal. Like everybody's excited and they're excited about everybody else's projects. And so, you know, they're, they're off on Twitter going, Hey, you know, Chris, I just picked up your book today or, you know, and, and it's great to see the entire community really get behind the whole thing and, and, uh, and, and work that much harder and get that much better. That's very cool. So, um, you said like you're on the fifth issue of, uh, Creature Cops? Uh, Creature Cops was a three-issue miniseries. Oh, so it's, it was only three. Yeah, it was only three. The trade is out in June, and the trade has some, some bonus material, uh, including – and this is kind of fa- – I mean, this is kind of fascinating to me. Maybe maybe people listening to your show won't find this fascinating at all. But what's fascinating to me is that, is that one of the backup stories in the Creature Cops trade is the five – page story that Rob wrote when he took the introductory introduction to comics writing class from me and he wrote his first five page comics comic that was a creature cops related story and then he after class he had it you know hired an artist had him draw it up got it lettered and everything and that story that was the initial concept that he started in this introductory writing class is actually published now in the trade which I think is fascinating like I just yeah it's no, so that's cool. great Oh, that is cool. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. Hey, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I think um, beyond telling their own story, guys can get creative with whatever other kind of back matter they want to put in there. And whether it's essays about, you know, other uh, stories that fit the genre that they're telling their story in or whatever, I, I really love that um, – the creator-owned books are able to kind of get into even more material and give the people that are willing to buy, especially the magazine version, more for their dollar. But I'm even happier when they wind up in the trade as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, if anything, that's that's like those early Grendel stories that Wagner did. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's fun to see that stuff in the very beginnings and what it looked like and what you know, comparing the more polished three issues of, of Creature Cops to whatever Rob wrote in that first five-page. Uh, story as well yeah. so that's that's great i don't know if you remember this but um when when uh this is funny this is the second time i'm going to mention eric larson and savage dragon in here but um but when when he published the first savage dragon trade that can that collected the initial three issue it was three issues right miniseries there's an essay in the back of that trade or maybe it was in the introduction that he wrote where he had talked about developing savage dragon when he was a little kid and that he had been writing and drawing these stories like on the back of eight and a half by 11 paper like when he was in high school and stuff uh-huh. and uh and at some point in time uh he had a house fire and he said that the one thing that he really you know wished there was some way that he could get back was he had kept all of that stuff and it it, it all went up in in smoke 
Yeah. And that he yeah. wished that he, he could just look at it one last time. And I was sitting there going like, Oh my, you know, I mean, a, like I would be like, if it were me, like I, that I would have been crushed from that. But, um, and I'm sure he was, you know, to whatever degree. Uh, but yeah, like, and, and like what a treasure would that have been? for those of us that that love to see where where these things develop and how they how they come about if we if we too could see those things you know not that he would have to print them but uh but you know that kind of thing i always think is fascinating i love it when when creators like go like hey i found this thing that i wrote in fifth grade you know and now and now i'm a giant comics creator (laughs) let's take a look at it and see where i came from nothing makes always yeah yeah nothing makes me feel better than knowing that everybody was terrible <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Like Norton, Norton will uh, Mike Norton will yeah. post on Facebook and Twitter like stuff he drew in when he was in eight years old, and it was like his you know version of Star Wars when he's eight and stuff. And they're fantastic. And yeah, they're they're absolutely like refrigerator art and stuff. Yeah. But it's cool to see that you know there's the seeds of what you know what was coming. And now you see Mike, and Mike's you know an amazing artist. Yeah. And, Drawing the hell out of everything, so no, that's it's fun, and I got if it's an original idea, or uh, I know uh, Mignola's uh, original Hellboy stuff, yeah, that he put in the first. Uh, I want to say it's in the first trade and everything. I think that's in the first trade. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, and to see sure. how that stuff grows, and then of course, you know, there was something like Hellboy. You know, you can you can now you can read whatever it is like fifteen volumes of Hellboy, and you can just see how it how it even right. from even from when he started doing it in volume one to yeah to yes. Yeah, it's yeah that that stuff fascinates me, and and it's that's a big part of why I love doing what I do with with comics experiences because I actually get to see these artists um, and writers, you know, grow and develop those skills and and get you know I I love it when somebody posts like on their you know if it's an artist like they'll keep a sketch threat you know maybe or um, and uh, and I love when they go hey I just looked at page one and I can't I, I don't even recognize that artist anymore. You know, like That's I like great. I love seeing that sort of stuff. So absolutely. So tell me about uh, the books you're working on right now. You've got a you've got a Guardian team up uh, book. So it's your return to the, uh, yeah. the annihilation world when it was the annihilation world back in the day. Yeah. So but, uh, yeah, it comes out. Uh, it comes out. Uh, I guess this Wednesday, May sixth, I think. Uh, so it's Guardians team up number five. You know, and uh, it's I'm the co-writer on it. Andy Lanning, I, I wrote it with Andy Lanning, and uh, fantastic. And Gustavo Duarte, I hope I said that right, is is the artist. He he's amazing. Umberto Ramos's cover was so amazing that Marvel had to make a poster out of it. Um, and uh, and and what's really you know kind of funny to me on sort of the macro level is that when I was the editor and and we were developing an, you know the original annihilation series uh you know that it was all sort of hard sci-fi and and like it was war stories and it was fairly dark i mean there was a lot of humor in it but overall it's, it's you know it's ominous yeah, it was a straight up yeah. yeah it was a straight up adventure story uh, and then this one is just not that it's rocket raccoon teaming up uh, with the pet Avengers. Um, so it's like almost as far away from that <laughs> as you can get, uh, while, while still using, you know, at least some of the same characters. So, uh, so tell me which, uh, pet Avengers we got Lockjaw, we got Ray, uh, Red Wing. Who else? Yeah. Uh, Throg, of course. Um, you know, Zabu, um, and, uh, Furball, even Ms. Lion makes an appearance. So oh, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and, and, you know, huge, you know, uh, a huge thanks and well done to Chris Eliopoulos and crew that that really developed the Pet Adventures. 
Yes, sir. Um, you know, and uh, and then yeah, I mean it's 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 fun. I mean it's funny because I haven't really touched these particular characters, uh, you know, much since since leaving editorial at at, at Marvel. That said, I don't want to make it sound like I've, I'm like some sort of like you know like plague victim. Uh, Marvel has always been very uh, very nice and and generous with me in terms of. You know, in terms of you know when I see them, and and uh, they invited me up to the premiere for Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff. So I, yeah, we yeah. talked about that last time. Yeah, yeah. so th- so yeah, I just want to make I like to make sure that I'm not like offhandedly you know biting the hand that feeds me or anything. But yeah, Marvel's been Marvel's been great, and so this was this was really fun. Um, you know, we just had a blast, and and we were just trying to make ourselves laugh, and hopefully make people who read it laugh. And uh, you know, we'll we'll see what people think on Wednesday, but. That's fantastic. Yeah, very cool. Is so? Did you edit uh, Pet Avengers? No, I didn't. I, I, yeah, I had left. I think I had left Marvel okay. by the time Pet Avengers uh, started. And actually, uh, this 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 issue. I'm not gonna lie. This issue wasn't my idea. Um, Andy Lanning had pitched the idea, and um, and then when they they approved it, um, I think he asked. I think he asked Mike Martz uh, at the, at the time, and Katie Kubert was on it, and uh, as editors and. If if he could bring me on, because he and I had been talking about you know a bunch of other things, and had started working together at, you know, on some things outside of outside of comics, and so he had asked if he could bring me on as co-writer, and they said yeah. So you know, I got this call from Andy, and you know, away we went. Yeah. That's cool. I you know, it just blows my mind how popular, and how, I, I'm very interested to see how it translates to the comics. Uh, in terms of how popular Rocket Raccoon has gotten, and I'm really happy for Scotty. I mean, Scotty yeah. is doing the regular series, and it's you know, God, when he was drawing it, it was just amazing. It continues to be amazing with the the, and I forget his name unfortunately that's drawing it now. But I love that it's still an art book as much as it is just a really funny book, and um, yeah. and a good 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 space opera adventure book as well that it's fun yeah i saw scotty actually at c2e2 we we were talking for a little bit because uh, when i was an editor at marvel i edited his first marvel project not his first professional work but his first marvel work and we were just was that human was that human that torch? was human torch i was an editor on human torch yeah wow that was, that's uh, impressive that you <laughs> you remember that but yeah well scotty's scotty's a buddy of mine yeah. and i and i do remember and it was um that was part of was that part of Marvel tsunami. tsunami stuff. Tsunami. Describe tsunami to the people that don't remember tsunami. That was an early Genesis uh, Casada. Yeah, line Yeah, Marvel or at least mid mid Genesis Casada uh, thing. Yeah, it was. I, you know, I'm not sure that we all really understood what that was supposed to be, and I think that kind of showed in the line. But it was supposed to be a manga influenced. At least my understanding of it was that it was a manga influenced line of Marvel comics. But we weren't going out and hiring manga people. We were hiring like <laughs> hip people, um, I guess. Um, you know, but you know, and Scotty actually is a case where you can, you can see a manga influence in that Human Torch. Like you can see where you got there with that with that particular book. Um, but you know, was it Johnny? Was it Johnny Storm or was it Jim Hammond or it was, was it a knife? It was Johnny Storm. Yeah, and he okay, and he, was, and he was a firefighter in that. Um, and uh, and then we had, um, but you know, like Salvador La Roca was on Namor, which doesn't particularly yes. say manga to me. 
Well, in that Namor series, as I remember, it was like making – it was young Namor, like young teenage Namor before the Bill Everett stuff of 1939. And you really kind of got this undersea – like not, Little Mermaid doesn't do it justice, but it was kind of a more storybook influence to a Marvel idea. And, and again, it was like 14-year-old Namor uh, as Prince of Atlantis rather than yeah. – the guy attacking the surface world right away. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, you know, not all those books came out of my office or anything, but uh, you know, I mean, I think the I think the pun intended runaway hit out of the whole thing was runaways. Runaways came yes. from tsunami. Um, and that was not out of my office. Um, but uh, what else we have? A, in, there was an Inhumans book that came out um, right. that was that was based. Yeah, that, that Sean McKeever wrote. Um, Coming out of Paul Jenkins and Jim Lee's uh, maxi series that they did, yeah, yeah, and, and then and then McKeever did yeah, the tsunami. The, se- the second issue of that Inhumans maxi series introduced the the younger Inhumans who went into the Terrigen Mist and got transformed. This, this was the book about you know that cast of characters. Uh huh. Um, I get it. I think Mystique was part of the. Um, yeah, I remember Mystique in there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's you know. a lot of good projects in there, but I think I think ultimately as a line, it sort of suffered from we kind of had a starting point for it and then when it actually came out it, it it was hard to say like this is what tsunami is um yeah i think venom i think venom might have come out of that yeah i, you're, I think you're right but anyway yeah. back to yeah. anyway you're with scotty yeah, yeah yeah no and i i mean that's the thing there have been these kind of interesting blips of uh series that came and went and stuff and i just yeah like you said i mean i do remember yeah. scotty working on human torch back then yes yeah, so, so, so he and i so he and i were just kind of laughing about you know, actually, kind of about like we, none of us really knew what we were supposed to be doing. I was fairly new in editorial at the time, and and uh, we didn't really we didn't really know what we were doing, and and uh, uh, and we were just we were just sort of laughing about where our careers both have gone. Like I've gone off and had this career that that you know it, it's interesting. You know, comics experience is always you know so I'm always sort of in the you know I'm always in the comics industry in in one form or another as you know always as comics experience as a as a teacher as a, as a as a comics you know proponent or you know whatever you know advocate advocate yeah thank you I, I was saying I was the word I was thinking of was ambassador I was like don't say ambassador that makes you sound pompous but advocate much better <laughs> thank you uh so uh, you know as a, as an advocate certainly but then you know I've been in in and out as an editor, in and out as a writer, and and you know now you know doing the the publishing thing too. So, um, so you know, my comics career is is really I would think to to an outsider quite bizarre probably to look at. And then you know I've managed to do things outside of comics as well that have been you know really entertaining. I've learned a lot from and and uh, and then we were just talking about his career and how how it's just developed. You know with Oz, you know the Wizard of Oz books, absolutely, you know, which, are, which are just gorgeous and uh how he's just you know we both very different ways and sort of you know feel like we've kind of you know we've 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 managed to make careers that we're just very happy with because we wound up doing stuff and we've been able to to either through our own choices you know decisions that we very consciously made or or through happenstance you know the, you know the right project fell into our lap at the right time you know sort of thing that we've managed to find these these very fulfilling you know careers but I think Scotty's work is just, you know, dynamite right now. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. And I, and I'm glad they're letting him kind of go cut loose as much as he does, uh, on, on racket raccoon. And, and it's this, that's the thing. It was just this fun art book as well as being a fun 
adventure as well. And it's just a it's a beautiful book. And God, those pages are just just gorgeous and real art. I yeah. mean, just really like just I love. I mean, and and again, I'll, I'll credit Marvel for this. They are really letting distinct artwork happen. Yeah. And and Marvel books have an amazingly fresh and exciting look that has been away from, you know, comics in a while and you know, great people Riley Brown and Trad Moore and you know, certainly Scotty and you know, and then you get classically good, you know, artists like LaRocca and uh I'm right now got him. I was uh, blanking on some of the more realistic uh Diodato, I still love his stuff yeah. and everything. So there's room for both at Marvel. There's room, really, room for anything at Marvel. And they do, and, and, and they do a nice know. job too of you know the, the, there'll be that range within each sort of you know sub franchise or whatever you want to you know. So you'll have the Spider-Man book with more realistic art. You'll have the Spider-Man book with super cartoony art. You'll have the Spider-Man yes. book that with painted art. You'll have this you know they they do it within each franchise. So which which again it helps play to different tastes and it makes it yes. feel fresh. So even if you are buying multiple Spider-Man titles every month, you're you're getting something different out of them. And 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 that's something that you know that going back to when I was there and going back to before I was there, I'm sure. You know, that's, that, that's something that they've you know consciously done. You know, how do you make each book distinct? Each book has to have sort of a reason to exist and to be different, as opposed to just Spider-Man Weekly. You know, which they which yeah. they did, and they did successfully, also, or I guess three times a month. You know, when they were doing yeah, that. yeah, no, you're right, and and that's true too. But that's the thing, and I mean, I realized that, like, you know, when when Casada was running things, you had an artist in charge, mm-hmm. and I think even Axel. While I don't know if he actually does have an art background or not, always seem to appreciate distinct art, yeah. and even in, even in his Vertigo days. And that's the thing that I really think that uh, you know, I, I and I, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I really do think that DC for a while was really kind of embracing a very specific realistic style that does fit action adventure superhero stuff fine. But I did feel like there were less diverse things happening there, and it took books like Harley Quinn to really kind of like open things up. And it seems like the new line, it, they they finally realized that let's have a bunch of different art styles and and have a little bit more uh, fun with art than uh, than initially we saw in the new Fifty Two. That's just my observation. Yeah, I, I, yeah. As an outsider, I kind of felt like they were. Pretty not. They didn't have a house style, but they were pretty close to having a house style. And then they had, you know, their yeah. books that, that weren't in that style as well. But it, but there was there was this sort of main line. You know, the bulk of their books had a very similar, you know, like as you said, you know, realistic feel. It was appropriate yeah. for superhero books. But but as a reader, I really like, you know, I like to see, you know, one week Chris Pachalo's take on. Avengers, and then the next week I want to see Diodato, and then the next week yes. I want to see Umberto Ramos, and the next week, you know, absolutely, you know, I I like that as a reader. There are other readers that that would prefer a consistency, you know. To yes, it. so I agree with that too. See, yes, definitely. You know, it's just kind of which which audience are you playing a little bit more towards? Sure. You know, yeah, no question. Are there any? Uh, did, are you doing a Star Wars book now as well? A Star Wars book? No, I thought you were saying because you kind of pulled Han Solo when you were talking oh, about working on um, books. So I don't know if that was just like an, an analogy in terms. Of I have worked yeah. I, uh, not in comics. I, I think I can say that not in comics, but oh, okay. uh, but yeah, somewhere else. But I'm not actually sure I'm allowed to say okay. that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, there you go. Yeah, there. Um, there I signed so many NDAs. <laughs> I understand. Well, on a totally unrelated subject, I'm saying this. How about your work in video games? What's been going on there lately? 
Uh, yeah, that's that's where a lot of the NDAs. Well, I know I was from. being yeah. I was being silly, but yeah. you don't have to uh, talk specifics about characters. No, but in terms of you mentioned that you have been working at video games. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, you know, video games is a is a is a very very different kind of writing, and I think one of the reasons that there are a couple of reasons I've leaned a little bit more heavily into it in the last couple of years. Uh, one is I've had a few more opportunities that always helps, um, and uh, you know the pay's not bad. So uh, so those are both nice. But one of the things that I found was that um, was that with video games you are asked to solve different kinds of challenges than I have had to solve when working with in in other media, right? Um, and uh, and I just I just found that sort of fascinating that I get to use sort of my you know you know the right brain is associated with the art stuff and the left brain associated with you know math math and logic I get to use both a lot um, there's a lot of sort of problem solving that goes into video games and for everything from well you only have so many character builds so you know even though you want that guy to show up for one scene that ain't going to happen because it's a whole other character they have to build. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, to all the different components that go into a video game, there's level design, there's gameplay uh, devices, and you have to write to, you know, hopefully enhance the gameplay. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I like that. And there's also an aspect to it too, where you're working with a team. It's interesting. The first couple of projects I was sort of brought on as like the outsider freelancer, Right, so I was sort of brought in, kind of towards the end, and sometimes to to script doctor and and do some things like that. And then, as um, I, I think the reason that that has changed is that confidence in me has grown. Like I've I've done you know what I think I believe they've said they've liked the work a lot. So I'm being brought on earlier and being and being introduced to to wider aspects of the teams involved. And what I like about that is it feels that sort of being a part of a team like that. Um, feels very comfortable to me because it feels very much like being in the editor's chair, you know, at Marvel or at IDW. And, and so I'm comfortable working with a team and sort of helping people, you know, you know, helping, you know, sometimes not even me really involved in some of the things that they're having trouble fit together. And I can, you know, it's fun. I get to sometimes get in there and say, well, I think we can solve these two problems if we do this. Does that work for you? Does that work for you? And, you know, I'm by no means am I the project manager, but it's, it's a comfortable sort of feeling to be in those, you know, those sorts of meetings and giant conference calls and stuff. And, uh, and so it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, a couple of games have come out. They've, they've been, they've been doing well. And, uh, and it's been, you know, I, I'm actually more excited about the stuff I'm working on now. Of course, that's the stuff I'm under NDA that I can't talk about, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's well, I want to, I'm curious because when I started word balloon, a lot of comic book writers were starting to write video games. And my initial questions were, um, I saw the, the a storytelling opportunity that was different from movies, comics, television, uh, with video games. And I don't know if it went the direction I thought it was going to go into. And I have to confess, be, not being a real gamer, uh, I, I could be talking out of my ass, so I ask this blindly. Um, it, it, my friends, when I am over and I'm watching them play games and they get to the story parts of games, they kind of blow it off and they kind of uh-huh. you know want get, to get right back to the action and stuff. Is there, uh, you know, I mean, is there some sort of feedback in terms of like, to what level of importance 
the the story is to the gaming experience beyond setting up the template for the person to be the shooter right. or whatever, right. you know, and, 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 and to enjoy the environment, you know, but that's the thing. And I, and I do think there is still a, a bigger level now in gaming than there was in the arcade ga- days. But, uh, you know, yeah, is it, you know, like, like I said, is there, is there still this involvement or, you know, it's like, hey, you don't have to overwrite the exposition part because they're just going to blow through it anyway and get back to the shooting. Right. Uh, well, there are different kinds of games. So so the the dynamics between the value of different aspects, the gameplay versus the level design versus the complexity of the world versus the story, you know, um, you know those can shift depending on the kind of game we're talking about. Right. Um, it's it's funny you were saying that. I was thinking, and I was thinking to myself, was the whole story of Double Dragon, like the original arcade game of Double Dragon, <laughs> just that this guy walked up and punched the Double Dragon dude's girlfriend like in the gut, and then just like carried her off? Was that the whole story? And then you just beat the crap out of an entire city until you rescue her? Was that it, or was there more to it than that? I don't. I honestly don't remember don't now. Know. But what's the but, was it Dragon Ace or whatever the. Uh, Don Bluth kind of animation. Oh, the dra- uh, yeah, Dragon Dragon Age, I think is what it Dragon was. Age. Yeah, no, 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 Dragon, no. Dra- Age. Dragon Age is a newer game. What was it? The Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer. Dra- okay, Dragon Slayer. Well, there, you know, I mean, and yeah. that's what I mean. Like, yeah. all right, so you've got parameters. You know their right. characters. You know the basics. So yeah. And stuff. So what? So what I what I've been doing every game I've worked on so far has been a licensed has been a licensed uh, property, which as I, I think I said earlier, you know, I really enjoy that because I get to play with. You know, I get to play with these characters that I've, in many cases, grown up, you know, loving. Um, So, you know, what's what's interesting, you know, some of the challenges are, you know, I've worked on on a number of Transformers games, and that's that's no secret. That's not under NDA. So, you know, when working on a Transformers game, one one of the things that's difficult is you you know you got to play to what if they don't know what a Transformer is? Now, the only characters I have are Transformers. So at what point does it make sense for a transformer to explain what a transformer is? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> right. you know, ultimately, it doesn't make sense. But you know, so there are those sorts of challenges to that, that. You know, as a writer, you're trying to overcome. There are certain kinds of exposition you do have to get in. But what what I'm really trying to do as a as a as somebody that comes in on on these games or works as as you know the head writer or whatever on a game is to make the story. Uh, you know, lend itself to the type of gameplay to enhance the tension so that when you're playing, if there's something I can do to, to make you feel like the stakes are that much higher, you know, in the way, you know, the characters are talking. The other thing that I'm, that I'm really focused on is, is the characters themselves. Like I said, you know, these are licensed games I've been working on. So how do I make Optimus Prime in you know, five minutes of gameplay, he has three lines of dialogue. Bumblebee has three lines of dialogue and Prowl has three lines of dialogue. How can I make those nine lines of dialogue tell you something about each of those characters um, or bring out the flavor of those characters? And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is just inject, you know, that line of, you know, that line of humor um, or, you know, innocence, you know, if it's Bumblebee or, you know, or, or heroism, stoic, stoicism and Optimus Prime or whatever, how can I, how can I do that in a way that's not just, 
you know, I'm Optimus Prime, put the gun down, you know, you know, how can, how can I find a new way to do that? That's still in their voice. Um, because when you're coming into a game like that, it, you know, if, if you're already a Transformers fan and you come into a game like that, then, you know, you want to feel like you're actually playing those characters. And, and so it's important to make those characters feel like those characters so that when the, the game player puts him or herself into the character takes control that they that they're set up feeling like that's I am Optimus Prime you know and that's I get that's it. a real that's that to me is is sort of the goal is to make make sure that people playing the game don't feel like they're playing a game they feel like they're living they're the life living, yeah they're living the dream <laughs> yeah sure no I'm hip I get it yeah and so you know and then what you do as the writer as you're told that you know you have to cut a third of the script out at the last minute uh, for budgetary reasons or whatever then you go through and you you're your goal is to make sure that the story still holds together when you're doing major edits and major rewrites um, and that you don't, you're not losing those character beats or hopefully the, the moments of levity. Those are those I think those are really important to have moments of levity because a lot of games, because they get so tight, right, because the budgets get constrained or whatnot, they get so tight that, um, you know, especially the action games, you know, they tend to get pretty grim <laughs> you know it's, sure, it's all like sure. we're all gonna die we're all gonna die we're all gonna die like the whole time and you want to have those moments of moments of levity you know that sure. that help things out very cool excellent man yeah well there you go andy i uh yeah I, I, are we are, are we covered is there anything you wanted to bring up that we uh, that we haven't uh, explored today no i think uh no i mean if if, if anything <laughs> we've talked about you know is is of interest uh you can find out more about pretty much any of it at comicsexperience.com. You can sign up for the newsletter if you want to find out when courses are starting up, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, whenever, whenever, yeah, are whenever we, folks are ready to, to start making comics, like I said, we're there for you. Where are we in the school season? Uh, we've got a couple. Of, we've got a, we've got a, uh, I'm doing my first ever miniseries writing course. That starts in, in two weeks, and we've got another introductory to comics writing course starting up soon. So we've got a, we've got a few you know, intro courses coming up in the next, uh, in the next month or two. So it's, it's a good time to take a look at the very least. And, uh, actually I'll say this too, cause this is pretty cool. You were talking about things people want to know that they didn't used to want to know. Mm-hmm. One of them is Kickstarter. So what we have coming up actually this coming Saturday, May 9th is, um, Ryan Brown, uh, who kickstarted God hates astronauts and raised, uh, just over $75,000 for his comic book. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He and he's done several other successful ones as well. He is doing a uh, a one day seminar. All these classes, all this stuff is online, so you can take it from anywhere. Uh, a one day seminar on Saturday about kickstarting a comic, exactly. And he's going to go through, you know, the Kickstarter page. You know, well, the kinds of uh, the kinds of stretch goals and all that. Very detailed. But very, but very much about comics. How do you, how do you get your comic funded? Because that's a huge hurdle that faces uh, a large amount of creators. So that one's, pre- I'm pretty excited about that myself. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I mean, I've had Ryan on the show before, and we've we've talked a lot about God Hates Astronauts, and specifically that campaign, both uh, reaching the goal, and then also, you know, when it's time to fulfill all the. Uh, pledge, you know, requirements and things, Oof, and just what a, the, what a yeah, job. The bus- <laughs> yeah, the business. Yeah, the business. No, honestly, yeah. like Ryan and Ryan and Palmiotti, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti are the two guys that, and Paul Jenkins, I would say as well. Those three um, are guys in particular that uh, have been very generous with explaining 
like what to watch out for even on word balloons. So okay. I would imagine that a full-fledged seminar with Ryan would be incredibly helpful. And also the great thing is if you can't uh, participate live, uh, you do videotape these sessions. And yeah. I'm assuming that will still happen for this one. And it will be available for a couple weeks afterwards or yeah, however you exactly. so, set so it up. Exactly. So if you enroll but you can't attend live, you can email me any specific questions that you would want. I'll make sure they get asked uh, you know, during the thing. But then but then if you can't attend live, there is a, uh, there is a video that you would be able to watch. Um, but you do have to register for the course. You know, It's not like we put the video up for so, – Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it, details at comicsexperience.com. Absolutely. Always be closing. <laughs> oh, hey, man. So, oh, that's uh, all good. Yeah. That's Andy Schmidt, and that wraps up this edition of Word Balloon. John Sontra saying thanks again for listening. It is Word Balloon's 10th anniversary month. More special programming is coming up all month long. Uh, I'm going to dig back and uh, bring back some of the uh, first Word Balloon episodes for you to listen to, in addition to new stuff. Uh, great new interviews coming up. And one of the reasons why I've been so busy, I wanted to let you know, if you are in the Chicago area for the next month at the Chopin Theater at uh, Division in Milwaukee, right off the blue line, uh, they are doing a play called Another Kind of Love, the Infusion Theater Company. Uh, the play is written by Crystal Skillman, who's been on Word Balloon before. She and her husband, uh, Fred Van Lenti, uh, co-wrote King Kirby, the Brooklyn play that did so well last summer and is uh, continuing to thrive. And we're going to get an update on that and some of Crystal's other plays, including Another Kind of Love, of which I got to uh, actually play in the play and uh, be a DJ. Uh, on uh, in the performances that the Infusion Theater Production Company is uh, okay, that the Infusion Theater Company is doing uh, for the next month until mid June. So uh, look up an, uh, another kind of love Infusion Theater. It's on my Facebook feed uh, as at uh, at facebook.com, and uh, I will also tweet about it. But uh, opening night is uh, coming up this Friday. Preview night is today on um, Word Balloon's anniversary day. And really looking forward to uh, hearing my voice as part of the production. Great original grunge-style music. Uh, Crystal wrote a great script. It's a very interesting story about an all-girl grunge band whose mother was a uh, punk rock star. And uh, the family legacy uh, goes on in uh, rock. And it's a, it's a great rock and roll story. Great music and very excited to be part of it. And uh, Crystal will be on Word Balloon to talk about it and other things very shortly, uh, likely the next episode of Word Balloon, the next new episode. But as I say, we're going to also have some highlights of uh, past Word Balloons coming to you this week uh, and uh, throughout the month. So stick around, and I hope you enjoy uh, Word Balloon's coverage of uh, our uh, 10th anniversary with you, uh, enjoying some of this great conversation. All brought to you by InStock Trades and InStockTrades.com. All brought to you by the League of Word Balloons. Listeners at InStockTrades.com, you can enjoy uh, savings on a lot of books. Uh, Fifty dollars or more on your purchase, you'll receive free shipping. They offer books at forty-two percent off, sometimes more from the standard retail price. On books like Mark Wade and Barry Kitson's Empire, thirty percent off, seventeen dollars and forty-nine cents. You can get Rat Queens, uh, the trade paperback volume two, is eight dollars and sixty-nine cents. You can get Smallville season eleven. Volume 6, 42% off, $9.85. There's Walt Disney Presents Donald Duck, hardcover, Volume 6. The Pixelated Parrot is 30% off, $20.99. And lots more, like Captain America Return of the Winter Soldier, Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting at their best. 
the uh, hardcover omnibus is 50% off, $49.99. It's waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Check out all the great deals for yourself at InStockTrades.com. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.